Subject's physical age, based on physiological profile, between 60 and 72, aging rapidly. Oh, I'm 34. I'm 34 years old. Bridge to all decks. Breaks herself for an incoming Enterprise incidence with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. I'm Steve Morris, and I'm feeling a couple of aches and pains a little bit, and my brain seems a little foggier than usual. I don't know. I just woke up feeling old. I don't know why. I I mean, my back hurt. I I need a new prescription of my glasses. You know, I forgot what I had for breakfast this morning. That must mean that we are up to the deadly <laughs> the deadly years in the original <laughs> series and it also means that this is a milestone for us Steve because we are now past the halfway point in our deep dives of the original series this is our this is episode number 41 out of 80 and we are joined by a very special guest Jim Brooks has been a journalist uh, for for many many years going back in the day for Starlog Magazine and Starburst Magazine, writing about Star Trek and other sci-fi properties as well. And he is also the writer of the story for the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Rightful Air, which picks the ball up from Kalis the Unforgettable and runs with it. And he is also one of my closest and dearest friends and an absolutely the right person you want to have joining us here on Enterprise Incidents. Welcome, Jim Brooks. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Steve. Well, Steve, uh, uh, what what was your first take on 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 the Deadly Years? I've always really liked this episode, and it's it's funny. We've had episodes that were thrilling. We've had episodes that were kind of scary, that were disturbing, that were challenging, and some that were really moving. This one is. It was is in many ways the most upsetting to me. Yeah, like it's just really painful going through this episode, and it's interesting watching it now, because I'm older. <laughs> also, because I've watched family members basically go through this now too, and seen this process, and it hit pretty hard watching it this time. You know, Jim, I want to ask. You know, we we had talked about having you on Enterprise Incidents for a little while, and when I asked the episode that you would really like to join us for. You picked the deadly years. So I would love to hear why you chose this episode for your deep dive with us. Well, you know, like you, Scott, my favorite character is Kirk. And this is definitely a Kirk episode. Um, You get to see Kirk um, losing the things that are most important to him, uh, the Enterprise. But it also affects his relationship with Spock. Um, He's losing his edge, you know, and it's something... It's also very timely, like Steve was saying, you know, you see now people who are first and second generation Star Trek fans, ones who started with the original series when it was originally broadcast and then people coming in uh, during syndication. And we're getting to that age, right? Yeah, Um, we really are. Yeah. That's a really good point. And, you know, I I have to say, too, that that, you know, when I was I remember, you know, sort of that first run that I you know, I'm part of the syndication generation like Steve is, you know, whereas Jim watched it, you know, as it was happening. And I have such vivid memories of watching these episodes for the first time. And I, I vividly remember that scene of Scotty walking into sick bay uh, and Kirk going, Scotty. But what what I love about this episode is is how much this episode has has continued to resonate with me over 
my deadly years <laughs> as I've gotten older. And like you said, Steve, at how relatable it is because of you know people who have gone through something similar to this. But I always thought the deadly years was a an extremely solid second season episode, and that makes it a really great Star Trek episode. This is done, you know, Gene Kuhn was still the showrunner and it's the first half of the second season when, when uh, I certainly think Star Trek was firing on all cylinders and uh, the the premise is far-fetched. Sure. But it still works. It's very entertaining. It is compelling. It is provocative and it is number 11 in the photo novel series. (laughs) So, right. so uh, I, you know, we, we got to get Steve of a, a collection of photo novels, but, but, you know, this is, this is definitely an episode that I, I, I keep going back to. It's not like top tier, like sitting on the edge of forever, mirror, mirror, the doomsday machine, but it is still an episode that I've come to watch over and over again, especially in more recent years. So the deadly years was directed by Joseph Pevney, one of the, uh, the directors uh, who directed the most next to Mar- Mark Daniels. And, it aired on December 8th, 1967, making it the 41st episode to air. So conveniently, because we're going in production order, it is also the 41st episode to film, which it was done over six and a half days between August 3rd and August 11th, 1967. The total cost for the deadly years $186,230, which puts it slightly over season two budget uh, by about $1,230. Fortunately, the score was tracked. They saved money there. And there was only one visual effects shot needed by the Westheimer company. And that is the landing party beaming down to Gamma Hydra 4 in the beginning of the teaser. Now, where the budget went up a little bit or the cost went up a little bit was in the makeup department. So, Steve, you and I have always sang the praises of cinematographer Jerry Finnerman, and we are going to do that again here. But one thing we haven't done enough of, one person who needs to have their praises sung absolutely is makeup artist Fred Phillips, who was joined by three additional teams to do all of the makeup for this makeup heavy episode. And I thought he did a super, super duper job. So the episode was written by David P. Harmon, and uh, he wrote his story outline in May of 1967. At the time, the episode was called Hold Back Tomorrow. So Dorothy Fontana took a look at this title and said, wait a minute, we already have a season two episode called Return to Tomorrow. So she suggested they change the title which Harmon did with his revised story outline dated June 5th, where it was now called The Deadly Years. Harmon wrote two draft teleplays, the second of which came in on July 3rd. Gene Kuhn did a script polish in mid-July of 1967, and he did a rewrite his final draft teleplay on July 27th. So Harmon was 48 when he wrote The Deadly Years. He also wrote a piece of the action, which... I cannot wait to dive into that episode. That's going to be a lot of fun. And also the animated series episode, The Eye of the Beholder, Mm. which Steve and I are going to jump into the animated series as well here on Enterprise Incidents. He also wrote other TV shows like Studio 57, Gilligan's Island, The Brady Bunch, Mannix, Ironside, and Vegas. 
and he wrote the films Johnny Concho, Rock All Night, directed by a young Roger Corman, and The Big Beat. Wow. Wow. Um, would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when they were making this episode of television? Absolutely. Well, as you said, it was shot August 3rd through August 11th. On August 3rd, Lyndon Johnson asked Congress to raise the corporate tax rate by 10%, which is a huge, huge raise in taxes in order to pay for sending more troops to Vietnam. Wow. Mm. At this point, there is a, a half a million U.S. Army personnel in Vietnam. 67, yep. Um, on the 5th, this is right in the middle, as we talked about before, it's right in the middle of China's Cultural Revolution, and the president of China at the time, who's Lao Shuaqi, I'm probably pronouncing that terribly, <laughs> uh, and his wife, well, there was one guy who wasn't a big fan of them, and that guy was Mao Zedong. And <laughs> so they were removed from their positions, they were put on trial, they were publicly kicked, ridiculed, they were tortured, starved. Uh, Lao died in prison two years later, um, and the, his wife lived for 12 more years, but still in prison. Um, this is also when two very, very important organizations finally came completely together, and that is the AFL and the NFL have finally joined at this point. Um, and another sports story is the World's Boxing Association had to put together an elimination tournament to find a new heavyweight champion because oh, Muhammad Ali yeah, yeah. had been stripped of his title. Uh, and that started then. Um, in Cambridge, Jocelyn Bell, uh, a scientist studying on a radio telescope, became the first person to discover a pulsar, a peculiar radio signal that happened at every 1.33 seconds at a very specific frequency. Um, and it was named the 1919 Cambridge Pulsar because that was its coordinates. There was a nonviolent strike in East Jerusalem protesting the Israeli-approved curriculum that was now being taught in all the Palestinian schools. Um, scientists in China made two tests of conventional weapons, but they were conventional weapons, big bombs, that they put radioactive material into. These, fortunately, have never been used against humans, but they have come to be known as dirty bombs. Oh, wow. These are the yeah. first two dirty bombs. Um, on August 7th, the Lunar Orbit Orbiter, which had been launched six days earlier in our previous episode, is now <laughs> taking very clear pictures of the far side of the moon. Dion Sanders was born, speaking of football. Um, and on August 9th, uh, I don't know if you know this person, but when I was in college, one of the best plays I ever worked on was a play called What the Butler Saw by a playwright named Joe Orton. Oh, and Joe Orton. I he, know Joe Orton. I think I, I know why you know Jordan. Why is that, Steve? Because of the film Prick Up Your Ears by Stephen Frears. Okay, that, that's one reason why I oh, know Oh, okay. Joe why do you know Jordan? Okay, well, here is a fascinating bit of trivia that has nothing to do with Star Trek, but has everything to do oh, with the Beatles. Yes, there you go. So I was waiting for Steve to pick up on the Beatles. So the Beatles had done two films. They did A Hard Day's Night and they did Help. They owed one more feature film uh, to United Artists. So Joe Orton was hired by Walter Shenson, the producer of the first two Beatles movies, to write the third movie. So, you know, now we're in 1967, so they can't play those happy-go-lucky mop tops anymore. They are way past that stage. So Joe Orton wrote a very bizarre, very avant-garde, 
and very inaccessible film called Up Against It mm. that would have had no commercial prospects whatsoever <laughs> for these Beatles. So it never happened. And from what I understand, uh, Joe Wharton died a, uh, a horrible death. He was beaten over the head by a lover, and that was the end of him. And the lover who then committed suicide, and that happened on August 9th during the filming of this episode. That's uh-huh. why I brought this whole thing up. This is when <laughs> Jordan was murdered. Um, and uh, on August 10th, um, Australia, and this just shocks me how late this is. Australia finally amended their constitution to allow Aboriginal natives to be counted as part of their population. Oh, wow. Yeah. And on August 11th, we're doing a podcast and you know regardless of how you feel about him one of the most important podcasters in the world was born and that is joe rogan so well there you go (laughs) um so that is what was going on in the world when they were filming the deadly years uh would you like to enter those years right now i think uh we're ready you know time we have to enter the deadly years because time is running out (laughs) that's exactly right so we beam down to the planet and they expected to be greeted by people, and there is nobody there. Where is everyone? I love the the way the episode just starts right with the beam down. Mm-hmm. You don't see the Enterprise orbiting Gamma Hydra 4. It, the beam down happens, and you hear that music cue of the transporter that was used for, for the Doomsday Machine. The camera zooms in a little. And I, I like how you're there. this is established that something is already very wrong just by by the, the, the howling wind and the, uh, the planet sounds. I had a subspace contact with a Robert Johnson, the leader of this expedition, about an hour ago. Well, did he report anything wrong? No, yeah, there was something wrong. I can't quite pin it down. His conversation was disjointed. His thoughts, a little foggy, unrelated. So Kirk tells Chekhov and the rest of the uh, landing party to look around. And this shot is remarkable. Because Chekhov goes into a building, and I think this is right out of a John Ford movie. It is black completely everywhere except for the bright light coming through the door, which Chekhov is coming in through. It looks amazing. It is very creepy. It is very scary. And then lights suddenly flash on, and there is a body. Let's say hello to Alvin. (laughs) (laughs) Chekhov freaks out, runs out, calling for the captain. Um, he is very, very scared. Right. Well, what I, well, what I like about the scene is, is like, like the way Steve you pointed out, he's walking into this room. It's completely black, and the way the light comes on, and you see Chekhov look up, and then look down, and then he sees the dead body. You know what I mean? Like you see him reacting to the light coming on before you see what he's actually looking at, and when he runs out, runs out of the building. And he's freaking out. He's crying out for the captain. The way Kirk grabs him, you know, one thing that I always liked about the beginning of the second season was how Chekhov is a new character. He was just introduced and he was already given like a a dynamic because of the way he like did in jokes about Russia. But he was 22. So he was young and he was really like looking, looks at Kirk as a father figure. And I, I like that there was a paternal relationship between Kirk and Chekhov. Well, it's kind of interesting, first of all, that Chekhov is so scared. That always hit me. You know, how many missions has he been on? But, you know, you have to have that so that you can get into adrenaline and such later. Come on, sir. In there. A dead man. Kirk just like looks, looks past Chekhov and then they walk 
They all walk into the building and and then the light comes on again and they're all seeing the the dead body. And this is just one of the reasons that I really felt like season two just fell into this great rhythm was like you see the reaction, like Kirk's reaction, he's a little startled. Spock, Spock's reaction is interesting. He's shaking his head up and down like fascinating. Like you, you know what he's thinking. Exactly what it looks like. Death by natural causes, old age. Jim, what's your take on the way this uh, scene is playing out so far? It's a striking scene, especially because of what happens next when Robert Johnson comes in with his wife. Well, and this is the thing, because what we find out is there is nobody old on this uh, planet that they that Spock just went through all the personnel. This is not possible. And then just, Jim, as you said, in Wander, Robert Johnson and his wife, Elaine, uh, and these people do definitely not look like young people. Okay, so Robert Johnson is played by Felix Locker, and Elaine Johnson is played by Laura Wood. So here's the interesting thing. So I thought I knew so much, uh, uh, or certainly everything there was to know about, about Star Trek, the original series. So in doing this research, I realized Laura Wood looked kind of familiar and then I found out why. Jim, do you know why Laura Wood looks familiar? No, no. Okay, well, here it is. Remember the scene in Charlie X when Charlie turns a young female crew member into oh. a... Oh, yeah. He turns her into an older woman, and she's feeling her face, and she screams like, you know, like she's horrified. That is Laura Wood. So this is actually her second appearance in Star Trek. <laughs> second appearance as a young person that has been turned into an old person. Oh, well, there you go. I'm telling you, mind blown. <laughs> That's her niche. I'm Captain Kirk of... You'll have to speak louder. I say I'm Captain Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Who are you? I'm Robert Johnson. And then Kirk asks, how old are you? And Robert Johnson, he goes, oh, um, let me see. Like, they're prolonging the intensity. I'm, uh, let me see. I am 29. As you notice, I'm 27. The zoom in, the zoom in to Kirk's expression, his reaction is great. And uh, Jim, I, I, I always like this teaser Again, it's it's not like an episode that's mentioned ever in like the greatest Star Trek episodes of all time. But I love this teaser. I love this setup. How about you? Well, it's it's perfectly what you want. I mean, a teaser is supposed to grab you, thus the name teaser. And I like that better than the current cold open. Um, it <laughs> grabs you. Uh, it's absolutely counterintuitive that people who are 29 and 27 are going to look like they're in their 80s. And then, of course, you you do what you always do in Star Trek. You push in on Shatner, mm. and then you cut. <laughs> it's um, a great teaser. For, first of all, I couldn't agree more about the phrase cold open. Hmm. I think it is the least descriptive, most confusing, stupid phrase. Um, and the fact that that's become what people call things this just seems silly. Um, <laughs> I, I think the teaser totally works, but I also think it doesn't quite make sense because – First of all, Kirk says, I just talked to Robert Johnson an hour ago. That's not a lot of time for him to get be this old. And second of all, they're so happy. 
You know, it's like they they they're going through exactly what our crew has gone through, and the fact they're like, "Hey, how you doing?" I think it doesn't really make a lot of sense, well, but here's it totally why, works. Here's why it does make sense. So when Kirk said that he spoke to Robert Johnson not a half an hour ago, he said he told Spock that something was off. He was foggy. His conversation was disjointed. So. So he probably didn't age a whole lot in that in that half hour or an hour, but you know he had no idea that I mean none of us knew what was what we were expecting. I mean it wasn't like he said, "Oh yeah, everything sounded great." Like Kirk was already suspicious that something was wrong by what was in his voice. So Johnson was already old, quite old by that point. And the other thing is. Um, uh, what was your other thing that you just said? Uh, they're just performances are so happy. Oh, oh, oh here's them. here's the other thing. They're 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 so past where the landing party is by the end of the deadly years, by the end of this episode, before the uh, the serum kicks in, that they're they're delusional and they've got dementia and they just they're they're out of it. Well, and, I, I, and also, I think that, you know, you see later on in sickbay, the, the only thing that's on Robert Johnson's mind is his wife. Yeah. So I guess yeah. maybe he's happy that they're still together in their golden years, which <laughs> is in their 20s, right? Um, <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, uh, let's go to sickbay. So we come back in act one. We're in sickbay. Uh, Robert Johnson is on the bed and we're trying to communicate with him. And he he can't he can hear, but he doesn't know, really understand what's going on. Um, and we head to the briefing room, and there we meet Commodore Stalker. Commodore Stalker, a very, very familiar face in the late 1960s, because he is played by Charles Drake, who had an incredibly storied and prolific career on the small screen and in the big screen on classics like Harvey Winchester 73, both with uh, Jimmy Stewart, a Glenn Miller story, same. All That Heaven Allows, uh, directed by Douglas Sirk. Uh, Valley of the Dolls, one of the great camp classics. Also on TV with Wagon Train, Mission Impossible, Macmillan and Wife. Uh, interestingly, Stalker's original name was Cook. And Dorothy Fontana flagged it and said, I think we might have a problem here with Cook being captain cook and there was like some kind of licensing deal thing that they had to be careful of so the 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 name was changed to stalker now uh stalker is a is a character that we've kind of seen before on star trek haven't we fellas well everybody but kirk is incompetent (laughs) commodores are all you know they're they're washouts you know and he's another one I, I think he's I think he's a he's the variation on a theme because he's not a jerk, you know, like we've had these ones that are aggressive before and really and really stupid and really jerks. This guy's nice. He really is trying really hard to be respectful and do the right thing. Um, and he's being included here in this briefing because apparently this is his area. The star base that he's covering covers this planet. And we also meet another doctor, Dr. Wallace. Dr. Wallace, played by Sarah Marshall. Uh, Also, some very interesting films uh, like The Long Hot Summer, Wild and Mm. Wonderful. And even more recently, you know, recently being, you know, in the last 30 years, (laughs) uh, the film Dave with uh, Kevin Fine and Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. Uh, On TV, she was in 
thriller, The Twilight Zone, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, Get Smart, I Spy, Three's Company, and The Jeffersons. So, so say hello to Dr. Janet Wallace. Um, and we review kind of what's going on and basically find out that we have no idea what's going on. My examinations have turned up absolutely nothing. In fact, I don't have a clue. And we talk about maybe something in the atmosphere, and then this plant is very important. We're close to the neutral zone between our Federation and the Romulan Empire. It's possible that Romulans have a new weapon and are using this colony as guinea pigs. Spock has already started looking into that area. And you know what? When I was rewatching this episode, guys, it was at this moment when Kirk says the Romulans and the neutral zone. And again, this is an episode that I've seen nonstop over these years, these last, you know, for me, 50 years, even though it's been 55 years. Uh, first of all, listening to it on my tape recorder when I taped it off of a TV. Then, of course, you know, uh, taping it on my VCR, buying the VHS, buying the DVDs, buying the Blu-rays, watching it on all the streaming services. And it wasn't until this moment, watching it again for our discussion, that it occurred to me how much the deadly years really does establish a continuity. Yeah. I mean, like really one of the top three or four episodes of the original series that really leaned into what had been established so far. And this is, ju- this is just the beginning. I, yeah, I totally, I totally, totally agree. Uh, and just at the end of the scene, Commodore Stalker very nicely. Yep says, you know, hey, I'm kind of anxious to get to Starbase 10 to get my new post. Yes, Commodore, we'll do everything we can to make sure you make your duty. Thank you, sir. You're, you're right, uh, Steve. I, I was thinking about this when I was watching the episode. I was, uh, I was ready to, like, you know, lean into him and be like, oh, he's just like Ambassador Fox from A Taste of Armageddon, or he's just like Commissioner Ferris from, from the Galileo 7, just a really annoying grading superior that Kirk has to answer to on the enterprise. And Kirk just does not want him there, but stalker you're right. He's like, I really believe that he means well throughout the course of this episode. And that does make him different from the other, other Commodores, but that does not mean that Kirk likes him (laughs) anymore. One thing that I definitely think they get wrong is he shouldn't be a Commodore is the Commodore outranks a captain. And he he says he says thank you, sir, to Kirk. Mm-hmm. He's like they should have made him a commissioner. They should have made him some other thing. True, because yep. it, it's weird to me that he's a commodore. But he heads out, and now we're alone with this strange doctor who's still standing around. And immediately that romantic music comes in, and we go, oh, okay. Is there something I can do for him? Okay, so first of all, the music that you're hearing uh, was just recorded for Mm. Mirror Mirror because it was uh, uh, Marlena Moreau's theme, Mm. and uh, it it fits perfectly with uh, Dr. Janet Wallace here in The Deadly Years. So here's the other – okay, so get ready for this, fellas. This is another moment where it occurred to me that there is is continuity being established right here in this simple scene – of flirting, of reminiscing between Kirk and Wallace. And here's why. So first of all, Kirk says... How long has it been? Six years, four months, and an odd number of days. You mean you don't know? Doesn't that delivery sound familiar to both of you? 
I literally wrote down the other line that it is identical, almost identical to. And what is that line, Steve Morris? How long has it been? Four years, seven months, and an odd number of days. Which is how long it's been since Kirk had seen, I don't remember her name, but the the, the prosecuting attorney in court-martial. Ariel Shaw. Ariel Shaw, yeah. So here's the interesting thing. I thought, wouldn't that have been like a great sort of running joke, how whenever... Kirk, like let's say Star Trek had lasted, you know, beyond three years and, you know, he runs into another old flame and he says, how long has it been? And she says, oh, eight years, six months and an odd number of days. But the interesting thing is that both of these episodes, the deadly years and court martial feature Captain Kirk on trial. Mm, good point. And in a very vulnerable, vulnerable position. But, but the line that she says about the last time she saw Jim Kirk was six years, four months and an odd number of days. So six years ago, where does that put Kirk in his timeline? Is he still at the Academy? Is he serving as a lieutenant on the Starship Farragut? Um, I'm just like trying to sort of like place in my head, like where he was and where that relationship could have been. Probably at the Academy, because if Kirk was already, you know, out there on the Farragut, he was not uh, emotionally available for a romantic relationship. It's interesting that you bring this up because we have reached the episode where we find out how old Kirk is, which we have referenced over and over and over again in this podcast. Mm. <laughs> and I think that his age in this episode is a mistake. I think he should have been older. I think he should have been 38 or 39, not 34, because if he's, you know, his advancement is just way too fast. Well, you know? it's, it's a lot slower than it was in the 2009 Star Trek movie. <laughs> that is a fair, <laughs> fair point. Yeah. <laughs> it's, what's interesting to me is that Kirk's behavior around Ariel Shaw is very flirtatious and romantic. And it's obvious that they have a light kind of relationship. She might be more into him than he is into her, but they're having fun. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the, the energy in this scene is very different. It is... Kirk is very guarded. In fact, she says, I see a little less the cool, efficient captain and a little more the old friend. Okay, so here's my question for you, Jim Brooks. So what color is uh, Janet Wallace's hair? I knew you were going to ask this. <laughs> Blonde, of course. Okay, so my question for you, Jim, is, is Janet Wallace... The blonde lab technician that Gary Mitchell is alluding to in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Uh, I was wondering if you were going to say that. Uh, it could <laughs> be. I, it could be. And, you know, what Steve was saying, just going off of that, you know, the fact that this is very different from the Shaw relationship. This is definitely something that is, is important to Kirk. And that plugs in with what you're saying about possibly being, you know, the woman that... Uh, that Gary Mitchell's talking about in the second pilot. But it's yep. definitely a different relationship. There's history. Like you said, it's very serious. And an earlier version of the script, Kirk is uh, a little more bitter as far as the uh, the breakup. Oh, is that, is that true? Yeah, yeah. And some of, it, some of it is dialogue that makes it into the script. But as I was watching the episode again and reading through the script, it's amazing when you have those two sources there, you look at what Shatner does with those lines, which come off as sharper and maybe not as positive for Kirk, but the way Shatner delivers them, he's taken the edge off of them and he's infused them with a little bit of lightness and he comes off 
much more positive. And, you know, even though it, it was a bad ending, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that is why William Shatner was born to play this guy. <laughs> um, it's true. But, you know, uh, as far as like Gary Mitchell's uh, reference to the blonde lab technician, I mean, I, I think in terms of like fan recon, it, it's uh, it's been sort of more universally accepted and 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 sort of leaned into that Carol Marcus from The Wrath of Khan was the blonde lab technician. Now, interestingly, in very early drafts for The Wrath of Khan, Janet Wallace was the scientist from Kirk's past. Oh, in, wow. Yeah, in that movie. That. Wow. So it was uh, changed to, to Carol Marcus, but whether or not uh, – you know, Sarah Marshall could have played her in 1982 and, you know, she was definitely still around. She could have, but that would have been really interesting to have that continuity brought from second season episode, deadly years to the greatest uh, Trek movie of them all in the wrath of Khan. But regardless, it is still fun to speculate who exactly that blonde lab technician was that Gary Mitchell was alluding to. Well, that's as close to Canon as you can get, I guess, without it actually appearing on screen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's an odd relationship. It's I, I find it, and the more I'm thinking about why they chose to put this kind of a relationship into the show, the more I think it's brilliant. Because what one of the things I see in this scene is that Kirk does not like to appear vulnerable. Is that I think, because I'm thinking about, okay, what happened? Well, she got assigned probably fairly recently to the Enterprise. And she, because she says this thing about being less the cool, efficient captain. I don't think he has given her any kind of personal time with him until this moment. And I think he's done that because he actually is vulnerable, you know, and he's being sort of, and that this is, he kind of warms up to her a little bit. And he says, Things wouldn't change if it started all over again, would it? You have your job, I have my ship, and neither one of us will change. I think there's some real pain in there. There definitely is. And, you know, you mentioned Kirk being vulnerable. And you know what, Steve, I, I never thought about that, about how, you know, who knows how long Wallace had been on the ship by this point, but this is probably the first time that he is letting down his guard and being, uh, you know, more laid back, more intimate with her. And he is being vulnerable and he's about to get a whole lot more vulnerable in ways that Wallace will become more attracted to. Well, and and I think also continuing on with that point, having somebody that he had had a relationship so close years ago that that ended prematurely, shall we say, <laughs> um, it it really underscores that vulnerability that you're talking about because yep. it's one thing to to be off your game to be losing your faculties in front of somebody that you haven't known very long, but somebody who's known you for so long and so intimately, it makes that feeling of incipient loss even worse. Yeah, for sure. Great point. It's a great point. And I think when they broke up, I think Kirk cut it all off completely. In all those years, I only heard from you once, a star crime when my husband died. You know, you never asked me why I got married after we called it off. This is where good writing can tell you a whole bunch of things about a backstory with very, very few lines. Well, I suppose that you met someone you love. I met a man I admired, a great man. Big difference. Big difference. Huge difference. And in the same field as you, you didn't have to give up a thing. No. 
Just you. And the music is romantic, and he's moving closer, and we know they're about to have that kiss that they haven't had in six years, four months, and an odd number of days. <laughs> and right at that moment... Captain Kirk. Saved by the bell. Yeah, there's the hail from the bridge. Uh, and that Spock wants to see him, so we set up, head up to the bridge. Standard orbit, Captain. Time yeah, remember that. Yep. And Kirk asks about this comet. Apparently a comet went by recently. We're running checks on it. I've reached no conclusions as yet. The comet was a rogue and has never been investigated. One of the images that I've always loved in Star Trek over these decades is the image of Spock at his science station and Kirk standing next to them and the two of them talking through a situation. Their chemistry is so great, and by this point in the early second season, they've established such a rhythm, and I think it's just so taken for granted now. It's just in in the analysis of television and the film, just when two people really have to have the right chemistry, but Shatner and Nimoy, they just absolutely had it. I love watching the two of them work through stuff like this together. And there's Commodore Stockard going, hey, dude, you know, Starbase 10 is a really cool place. This, this is interesting. I'm, I'm only really thinking about this for the first time, that even though he certainly means well and is his demeanor and his delivery is a lot more, uh, uh, I would say, accessible than, than that of uh, Ferris and, and Fox, uh, he's still anxious to assume a position of power. So this is what I love about this scene. Starbase 10 has great facilities to, to meet the needs for them to figure out what happened to the colonists on Gamma Hydra 4. And Kirk shuts him down in a way, in a way where he is beaming with pride about the Enterprise. I know you're anxious to get to the base, but we have a few facilities of our own here. I think the Enterprise will do quite nicely. I'll be in engineering, Mr. Spock. And then Kirk heads out, and just as he's heading out... Maintain standard orbit, Mr. Sutherland. You already gave that command, sir. Oh? Well... Follow it. And he exits. Sulu looks over at Spock and the camera pushes in on Spock. And I think in this specific scene, the thing that has the most uh, power, if you're looking for it, is like you were saying. We move over and we look at Spock and Spock is plainly concerned. He sees that something is wrong. And if you watch the episode, as you go through the episode, uh, when you get into, I think it's act three, where we have the competency hearing. And then in the end at Act 4, a lot of what they do is not only do you see the degeneration from the performance from, from Shatner, but they're very good at showing you the reaction of the junior officers yeah. and his fellow officers when he starts starts down that slope. It's a very effective way of underscoring and amplifying that. And I think that that comes from director Joseph Pevney, because by yeah. this point, he had already directed quite a few episodes of Star Trek. And, and that's also, you know, Gene Kuhn running running the show, uh, being the, you know, the day to day producer on it. Again, this is Star Trek is really it's 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 in its comfort zone. It's in its rhythm. Everything is just working, firing on all cylinders. The other thing um, I know I brought this up before is this idea that the audience can be with the characters in the show. They can be behind them or can, they can be ahead of them, meaning we know what they know. We know less than they know. We know more than we know. This episode is structured like a horror movie and we are ahead of the characters because oh, the mo- of that. because the moment that Kirk repeats the order and probably even before, because we know we're watching a show, we're no, oh, no, they're all going to get old. 
We know mm-hmm. it before anybody. And by the time we have that pushing on Spock, we know it 100% what is about to happen. And the feeling of dread that you get is pretty palpable. Uh, yeah, it's a great point. And I think also that that by this point in their in their relationship, Spock knows Kirk better than anyone. And anyone else might have just uh, laughed it off when uh, Kirk repeated the order and just, you know, defensively said, oh, well, follow it. Um, but Spock, Spock knows already something very minor, but Spock knows that something is wrong. And now we're about to get it confirmed because we go into sickbay and in comes Lieutenant Galloway, who is the other person who I didn't mention who was down in that landing party. Um, and she comes in to talk to Dr. McCoy. Doctor, may I speak to you for a moment, please? So Lieutenant Galloway is played by Beverly Washburn, who is a child actor, and she was on film, serialized film, in Superman and the Mole Men. She was Mm. also in the classic film Shane, the classic film version of The Lone Ranger, and one of the all-time great films from our youth, everybody's youth, Old Yeller. She was also on TV in Fireside Theater, The Loretta Young Show, the new <laughs> Loretta Young show, Wagon Train, Gidget, The Streets of San Francisco. Um, that's crazy that she's in Shane because we literally just did Shane for the Cinephiles. And so she must be one of the daughters of the homesteaders. That's yes, what, that's that's exactly who she is. I know this is going to sound foolish, but, well, I seem to be having a little trouble hearing. It's probably nothing important. Do you know any notice anything about Dr. McCoy at this moment? Uh, I do, Jim. Do you? Yeah, he's already starting to get gray. Yeah. He's already starting to get gray. Very, very subtly. Uh, we'll see a little bit more of that gray coming up in just a couple of moments. But when I see the scene, every time I see the scene, Jim Brooks, what do you think I think of every time I see the scene of Lieutenant Galway wanting to talk to Dr. McCoy? Uh, a blooper shot? Yes. <laughs> Exactly. When I feel like hell, I forgot my line. Yes, yes. Beverly Washburn was filming her scene. She forgot a line. She goes, "I feel like hell. I forgot my line." Well, this this episode has a couple of good bloopers. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. get to the others. Um, and now we get to go to Kirk's quarters and see William Shatner with the shirt off. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah. sure he was thrilled about this. And he calls up to the bridge for a progress report. That's all perfectly normal. And then he says, Astronomical section reports that a comet recently passed by. Check into that. I'm doing that, Captain, as per your previous order. I always found this episode really painful to watch. And now having, you know, uh, my dad died of ALS, and so have, which is a terrible degenerative disease. And having watched someone I loved slowly lose the ability to be the person they wanted to be watching it this time was rougher, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This episode, you know, I, I definitely have in more recent years, uh, be, been more in tune with what, what afflicts all of the landing party members, but particularly Kirk, when it comes to losing his memory, especially his short term memory, like he does in this episode, um, uh, very relatable. You know, never thought about it when I was six years old, no, 16 or 26, but 53, you, you, you start thinking about stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, my my mother-in-law has dementia right now, and so I oh. has no short-term memory, and I, it's, it's weird to watch this. Um, yes. And Kirk has a reaction to the fact that he repeated this thing, 
but you know, kind of moves over it and says he's going to head to sick bay. And then as he's grabbing his shirt, he gets a twinge of pain in his lower back. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> we arrive at sick bay. Robert Johnson has died. Um, and... Well, hang on. Wait a minute, Steve. Okay. Robert Johnson has died. McCoy does nothing. <laughs> but in this case, wait a minute. In this case, he's he allowed. It's old age, natural causes. Well, he, McCoy is off the hook. <laughs> he tr- And he tried. It's not like he hasn't been trying. Um, um, and, then, uh, and then Kirk, you know, grabs his arm. And we could see that he's in pain. And just at this moment, we hear a message from Scotty. Dr. McCoy, this is Scott. May I come up and see you? All you need are vitamins, but you can come up anyhow. And of course, we know. This is what I mean about us being ahead. We know, uh-oh, something's going on with Scotty. And then Kirk says, this is all happening very fast. Holmes, I believe you're getting great. You take over my job and see what happens to you. It's a moment of levity. At least Kirk thinks it's a moment of levity. But in addition to the fact that that Bones is now a little, little, little grayer than he was just a few moments ago with uh, Lieutenant Galway, he's also becoming more irascible. Yep, absolutely, one hundred percent. And he and his his bedside manner at this moment, he says, "What's your problem, Jim?" What's your problem, Jim? Yeah, that's what he says to yeah. his captain. <laughs> and and Kirk, you know, playing things down. It's a shoulder twinge, probably muscular strain. Um, and <laughs> I love this little bit. Probably right, Doctor. By the way, I don't like the way you've been running this ship lately. And Kirk knows what that he's like. All right, reprimand received. I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, again, this all played perfectly. He goes to examine the arm. He thinks it's not going to be anything. Then looks at his. What's that little device called, by the way? Jim? Well, they called them Feinbergers, but it's a medical scanner. It's a medical scanner. Why'd they call them Feinbergers? Uh, That was the property master. Oh, (laughs) nice. Feinberg. And he looks at it again, examines again, looks at it again. And then this moment, I don't know if this was in the script or if this was the director, but but, uh, they play it absolutely perfectly. And Shatner's reaction is great, is Bones goes and touches his hand, and Shatner jumps like a reflex. You could feel that shot of pain. Yeah, he goes out. Yeah, he like like McCoy grabs grabs his hand, grabs his joint, mm-hmm. squeezes his joint, and and Kirk's reflex. Yeah. he pulls it back, and it's just like ow. And it's you're right; it's perfectly played because a moment of levity quickly changes to a moment of dread and high drama I, and jim i mean i i gotta say that's that's starting with this scene with mccoy i think that d kelly is superb in this episode well yeah let me let me say this i this is this is kirk's episode this is shatner's episode but the work that d kelly does in this because you know we're all used to watching d kelly play d kelly right yeah sure um you watch what he does, and you know we've all had uh, older relatives. He's spot on, and mm-hmm. I don't yeah. understand. I know there was talk around the set about um, him being pushed for a, an Emmy nomination. Correct. I don't know why he didn't get one because he he just, as far as performance goes, he blows everybody else away. I agree with that, Jim. I think we better run a complete physical on you. Why? Just muscular strain. Huh? This advanced arthritis is spreading. It's impossible. 
and again, this is why this is so well constructed. It's just as we're dealing with that. And McCoy says, I can run it through again, but I'll come up with the same thing. And just as we're in this emotion, in walks Scotty. Scotty. What a shocking moment. Jim, do you remember the first time you saw this episode and you saw Scotty walk through the door into sick bay looking old? Because oh, I yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's an episode that, you know, it, it leaves an indelible impression. And that's that's a great uh, way to hook into the next act. You know, I, and I want to say, Steve, you know, you you were the way you were just describing the deadly years as a horror story makes so much sense when I think back to my youth watching these episodes for the first time. And remember, Steve, when we were talking about Mirror Mirror, I said that, you know, Spock kind of scared me in that episode. Well, you know, so so I'm watching these episodes in production order when I'm a kid. So the next episode that I watched, uh, you know, the following week was, you know, the deadly years. So when Scotty walked in, and I knew who Scotty was because I just seen Mirror Mirror, when Scotty walked in looking old, I remember being scared. This one scared me. I wasn't scared by Bearded Spock. I was scared by this episode. <laughs> um, and we come back in Act Two, and there is Chekhov in sick bay getting examined, having to do that leg kicky exercise thing um, because he is the one person who was not affected by this. And I love, by the way, they set up the moment that Kirk turns towards camera and we see how he's changed. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, and Shatner has, all, uh, I forget where he, where he wrote this, whether it's Star Trek memories or Star Trek movie memories, but the type of setup he loved to do in a scene was where he had his back to the camera mm. and would turn around quickly. And he did that in the teaser for the enemy within uh, remember when he steps off the platform mm-hmm. and he did it, he did it towards the end of act one when he turns to the camera and says, me, my human said that I've been mm-hmm. resting here mm-hmm. ever since you left, you left me. Uh, and he's do, he does it here. Um, and he's great at it. No wonder he loves it. He does it on a mock time too. Where we're in a mock time. Remember he goes, why must he die? Oh, right. Oh. Why within eight days? Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> um, it's good memory. It's so funny that the things that that pop out at you and it's really fun because that is such a theatrical move. The who they, yep, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone, everyone in podcast land got to see me make that move. Um, uh, and what we hear is that everyone, with the exception of Chekhov, are aging at approximately 30 years a day. Wow. But that rate, they're they're in very serious trouble. And Spock estimates they have a week left to live, but that they would become mental vegetables in less time than that. Total senility. Yes, Captain. In a very short time. See, what's interesting here is now that you're starting to show everyone being affected by the by the ravages uh, of the comet, this is where Fred Phillips had to step up the teams that he had working with him, that this is where he had three additional makeup teams working with him. So so McCoy's, McCoy's performance is more showy, and it's great. And Shatner's performance is more showy, and it's also great. But Leonard Nimoy's performance in this episode and Steve, you and I have talked about so many great episodes where Nimoy was just magnificent, like obviously a mock time, 
Miramir, this side of paradise. But Spock's gradual descent is just that. It's more gradual. It's more subtle. It's more, uh, I would say, dialed back. But it's just as effective because it's Spock that this is happening to. He's still trying to hold on, but he talk, starts talking a little slower, uh, a little, his voice is a little deeper, but he still is Spock. Well, and we have this moment where McCoy turns to Spock and says, Oh, you're perfectly healthy. And Spock's reply is so, I think this is among the most vulnerable, maybe since of mock time, that we've seen him. I must differ with you, Doctor. I'm having difficulty concentrating, which is most disturbing. My eyesight appears to be failing. And the normal temperature of the ship seems to me to be increasingly cold. And McCoy's response is... I did not say you weren't affected, Mr. Spock. You are perfectly healthy. That is, for any normal Vulcan on the high side of 100. And that's when it hit me, watching it again, that another establishment of continuity with McCoy, while he's getting older... His southern dialect is getting thicker, and he's leaning into his old country doctor mannerisms like he did in this side of paradise. Was that something that stuck out to you too, Jim? Oh, yeah. I mean, considering, too, that I have a lot of relatives from the south, and and (laughs) more and more like they do, Um, he, he, he slides into it perfectly. He times it well. He doesn't go too fast into that uh, that sliding back to childhood or to his young adulthood. You kind of see that, too, in this side of paradise when he's affected by the spores. He goes full out Southern, you know. Yep, yep, absolutely. Well, one of the interesting things, I think, is that we get to see basically what kind of old men these guys are going to be. Um, yeah. And the next one we see is Scotty, who says, Captain, when I go back to the station, you feel up to it, Scotty? Of course I do. I just need a wee bit of rest, that's all. Poor Jimmy. <laughs> and, and, and Spock kind of helps him out, and I go, okay, so McCoy is the irascible, grumpy old doctor. Spock is becoming increasingly frail and slow-speaking and vulnerable, and Kirk has all this energy, which we're going to see, and all of this desire to do stuff. And Scotty's like grandpa that's going to fall asleep on the couch. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you know, for considering that, that Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Dewan didn't other than obviously going through the makeup process and having just that shocking moment at the end of the first act where he walks into sick bay, Jimmy didn't really have as much to right. do as he, as he did in some of these more recent episodes. And that was something that he was disappointed by. Um, but still, the moments that he had really, really counted. And, and a couple of interesting things is that, so McCoy is getting older and the makeup process that was used on DeForest Kelly, when it came time to film DeForest Kelly's cameo in Star Trek The Next Generation for the premiere episode, Encounter at Farpoint, Far the makeup team on Next Gen actually referred to the makeup that was used on DeForest Kelly for the deadly years. And it it was real, really smart. And the other thing, so, so we talk about, about makeup and how, how Fred Phillips just really, really like this was his, his baby, this episode. So Jim, I'm sure, you know, in the book, the making of Star Trek, 
what what are what are the photos that we see in that book? Yeah, so we see the photo of Shatner having his hair pulled back and silvered, which are also in the Cushman book too. What I thought was funny was that uh, Shatner's hair thins when he gets to that point. And then, of course, later on, it thickens again. And I've often wondered if maybe his hair getting thicker and not following logically had Uh something to do with Mr. Shatner himself. (laughs) Possibly, yeah. It certainly wouldn't surprise me. But but one other thing that this scene established is that Vulcans age a oh, lot great more point. Slowly. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. 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 Is that Vulcans, uh, they age a lot more slowly than humans, which is why when we got to Sarek and Spock's appearances in The Next Generation, they were able to be played by Mark Leonard and Leonard Nimoy, respectively, without wearing any makeup, by the way. <laughs> and then this next moment is one, this is where you really see a director, because and I'll say it real quick, but the, the there's a basic way you shoot a scene, which is you shoot a master, which is where you see everybody, and then you take your camera and you shoot the individual close-ups or two shots that you need. And then when someone talks, the basic normal way of making a film is you cut to their close-up. And that is exactly what Joseph Pevney is going to choose not to do. Because we hear McCoy say, you can leave Lieutenant Galway, but we do not see her. What? Spoke to me, doctor. And they suggest she goes to her quarters and gets some sleep. No, I don't want to sleep. Can't you understand? If I sleep, what will I find when I wake up? And again, we're not cutting to her. And what that's doing is it's withholding her face because, and we, because again, we're ahead, we're going, oh no, how old is she going to look? Yeah, it's a heartbreaking scene. And it's also a terrifying scene uh, because of what we talked about before, about how when you hear something before you see it, and this is a great use of it. And finally, as she gets up, we see her. And first thing we see is she walks towards a mirror. And you know what? I got to say, she's right. <laughs> that is a stupid place to hang a mirror. Well, and it wasn't there when, when Colin was <laughs> going with Marla MacGyver's. It wasn't there. It's, we walked by that door a lot. Yep, yep. And again, we go back to Chekhov. That's the big question. Why is Chekhov not aging? And Kirk says, Is it his youth, his blood type, his heritage, his glands, his genes? <laughs> and, and unfortunately, this means Chekhov gets to have another complete physical. Um, and we hear as he's jumping on the bed in a very youthful manner. Won't hurt much. Promises. Yeah. By the way, uh, helping him get him get on the bed there is Nurse Christine Chapel, of yeah. course, played by Major Barrett. But it's interesting to point out Major Barrett here for two reasons. One, because she does double duty in this episode, also as the voice of the computer of the Enterprise, and also because unlike with the previous episode. Uh, Mirror, Mirror, where you had the entire, uh, you know, the top seven cast members of Star Trek, all with great roles. Now you have eight of them, you know, the the big eight, so to speak, if you Hmm. include Nurse Chapel, Major Barrett. And uh, that's another thing that's really great about this episode is they're all there. Kirk is outside in the corridor and who is waiting for him but Dr. Wallace. Look, we know the problem. We know the progress of the affliction. Therefore... Once we find the proper line of research, it's only logical we find a solution. I love that Kirk goes, you sound like my first officer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and But then this is where this scene gets weird. No problem is insoluble, not even ours. Now, is the, the hours could refer to the disease that we're facing. That is our problem. But mm-hmm. I don't think that's what she's saying. 
No, I don't think that's what she's saying either. I think she's referring to their relationship in general. Yeah. Our situation doesn't have its roots in logic. The heart is not a logical organ. This is where Kirk points out or asks her, how much older was your husband? And she says that he was 26 years older. And and obviously that, you know, Kirk even responds, that's quite a difference. But what's motivating Wallace here by this point is it is it just to to rekindle the romance with Kirk, or is she becoming more attracted to him because she has an affinity for older men for older men and Kirk is now an older man? You could see it either way, and certainly I I think that uh, she's afraid he's seeing it that way. But I, I I wonder too if maybe she's kind of trying to to bring herself back into his life. He's, right. he's in a position where he wasn't before where maybe he needs her a little more than he did before. So she can kind of swoop in as like a, a white knight in a way. Oh, that's a good point. I don't think it's I don't think it's manipulative. I think that maybe she sees this as an opportunity. I I completely agree with that, Jim. But the, it's the other side of this conversation that is that is the really interesting one. To me, why does Kirk ask this question? Because it's, it's what's going on with Kirk. And here's the big thought that I had is I think Kirk is really insecure is that I think he was far more heartbroken than he ever wanted to admit when she married this other guy. I think he is. And now that she is paying more attention to him, he's go, he's literally going to the most surface and most insubstantial reason of why she might be attracted to him. Oh, is it just because I'm older now? And mm-hmm. I and and what what this makes me think is Kirk never shows vulnerability. He's Captain Kirk, you know what I mean? And we, yeah. we've always believed that he's just the most confident guy you could possibly imagine. And in this moment, I think not only are we seeing that this aging Kirk is far more vulnerable and insecure, I think it's revealing that he always has been. He's just had the skill and confidence to put that aside and do what is necessary to do, you know? Well, when we, when we did see Kirk vulnerable, it was at another point early in the voyages of the USS enterprise. Mm -hmm. And it was also when Kirk was at the mercy of an affliction. Exactly. What am I talking about, Steve? Naked time. Right. No beach to walk on. Yeah. Uh, Never lose you. Well, and, and, and that is also a case where he put aside love, you know, and right. I think this is the that there's there's real deep pain here, and I think that pain is bubbling to the surface, and sh- and he and this is such a strong, p- difficult, painful moment. Is he says, "Look at me. What do you see?" I see Captain James Kirk, a man of morality, decency, handsome, and strong, and old. The way Shatner says, he goes, "And old." Shatner is great in this episode. I mean, he's but- just he's right on point. And I think that's I think that's also a very important line in that you see that Kirk at this point, even even amongst his vulnerability, he's got a more realistic uh, attitude about where he is. If you look later in the, the story, which we'll get to, obviously, suddenly he's not he, he needs the kind of affirmation and attention that she's trying to give him now at right. this point. He at least is realistic enough to say, what are you offering me, Jan? Uh, love or going away present? Ouch. Yep. That is such a painful line. Yeah. That is real. 
because and I think it's because we see I think he did love her a lot and now he's he's basically saying I don't want your pity. Yes, exactly. You know? That's exactly what he's saying. Um we're up on the bridge. This is among my favorite checkoff moments <laughs> of all of Star Trek. Yeah. I think it's so great. He says, "Some more blood, Chekhov. A needle one, her Chekhov. Take off your shirt, Chekhov. Roll over, Chekhov. Breathe deeply, Chekhov. Blood sample, Chekhov. Marrow sample, Chekhov. Skin sample, Chekhov. If, if I live long enough, I'm going to run out of samples." And, and Sulu's <laughs> just at his, you know, he's he's minding his own business, you know, doing his job, you know, and he, you know, he looks over to Chekhov and just kind of kind of smirks. He goes, "You'll live." <laughs> yes, but I won't enjoy it. <laughs> I think that's perfect. It's a perfect Sulu checkoff moment. It's great. But that that levity is not a sign of things to come for this upcoming scene on the bridge, yeah. which is hard to watch. It is painful to watch the humiliation that our hero goes through in this next scene. Maintaining standard orbit, Captain. Reach over to 20,000 perigee, Mr. Sulu. And a yeoman comes to bring him something to sign and he drops his pen and she goes to pick it up and he goes, yeoman. Yeah. He stops her like, don't pick up the pen. I can do it basically. So, so this is yeoman Atkins played by Carolyn Nelson. I bring her up for two reasons. One, because she would soon, soon be married to Joseph Sargent and Joseph Sargent directed the Corbomite maneuver mm -hmm. and gave Spock or uh, gave Leonard Nimoy rather, uh, probably the most useful criticism and direction when it came to playing Spock with his delivery of the word fascinating, but, but also this moment where you have this, this yeoman of the week, you know, they're still sort of bringing yeoman in week after week who really made me miss yeoman rant. I, I, I agree. I agree. Well, and it would be interesting, like if, if it was instead of Dr. Wallace, if it was yeoman rand. Oh, yeah. Well, that's yeah. true, too. Oh, that would have been really interesting. Sure. Um, this moment, though, of Kirk trying to pick up the pen. And uh, Jim, as you brought this up before, it's the reaction shots that make it so painful because you see everybody watching him. And I'm telling you, and I'm not going to go into it in too much, but the first thing that my dad lost was the use of his hands. That's what mm. they became weaker and weaker. And there were so many times where he was like, no, I can feed myself. And then we, the family, would sit there and watch him struggle to pick up a fork and struggle to put some food in his mouth. And then eventually, of course, we had to feed him ourselves. Oh, and it's just yeah. like watching a, a man that you admire and who is very prideful, as my dad was, and as obviously Captain Kirk is, struggle to do a thing publicly is real rough. And, of course, the worst person that's there to watch this is Commodore Stalker. One of the things that's striking to me, but one of the little little bits that Shatner does, bit of business, is when he reaches down to get the stylus, his eyes narrow and he kind of cuts to the right. Mm. Because you see in this situation and a couple of other situations, I, Kirk's not vain, but Kirk is very invested in the way he comes off to other people. And he's embarrassed. Yeah. He's embarrassed. Yeah. Now, of course, later on in the story when we get into the uh, hearing, he's he's lost it so much that he doesn't even know enough to be embarrassed when he says all the things that he says. But but this is a this is a nice little bit that Shatner does that shows that, you know, 
he's he's embarrassed. He knows he's not at the top of his game. And of course, like Steve said, you know, Stalker's there. Stalker's always there. And he's aware of the fact that Stalker is watching. And he's just standing there. Yep. He's not saying anything. And he, but he's just like, like, like he's just there. He's yep. just there. And you're just like, just, oh my God. It's like one of those like annoying people that like, he's like a bad penny. He keeps turning up. Um, and again, but he's very, he approaches him with a lot of deference and says, I'd hope for a few words with you at your convenience. I have very little time. He's annoyed. I, what Commodore Stalker ends up doing in this episode is terrible and stupid. But at this moment, I 100% believe that he is sincere when he says, Captain, I am watching four very valuable and one almost irreplaceable members of the Starfleet failing before my eyes. I, I want to do something to help. And then it's these embarrassments are going to happen in rapid succession now because the first thing he says, let's say, if you're worried, let's send a message to Starbase. You sent such a message this morning. Ugh. Oh, then he sees painful. the yeoman and asks for the fuel consumption report. I gave it to you, sir, and you signed it. I had signed it. I wouldn't ask for it, now would I? And there looks, and he looks at the report, and there's his signature. So this moment is something I never noticed. Just like Jim, you brought up when he dropped the, you know, the pen to the clipboard, and he looks to his right to see if anybody's looking at him. Okay, so... I never noticed this until just the other day when I rewatched this, when Kirk goes back to sit in the captain's chair, the look on his face. Mm, yes. I noticed it too. Yeah. The look on Kirk's face, he knows he's losing it. Like he is, he is in a very, very subtle, subtle in the sense that I missed it for the last 50 years, but in a very subtle way, he is, it's finally hit him that he is losing his bearings. And when he sits back in the captain's chair and he has that look on his face, he's scared. Well, and this is the thing about this episode that I think about now is when people get these, this kind of news, dementia, some degenerative disease, they have a lot of time to adjust to it. You know what I mean? Like, cause they have the early signs and it's usually a process of months, maybe years, many, maybe many years before they start to have real problems. This is happening in hours. Yep, yep, yep. And, and Jim, did you notice that scene too? When that moment when Kirk sits back in the chair and he has the look on his face. Oh yeah, I mean, one of the things that you see about Kirk. I mean, he Shatner. Shatner does a great job in this. He he doesn't approach the level that D. Kelly does as far as the physical acting, but he is very, very good at projecting the kind of paranoia that people have when they get older, particularly when they start to lose their faculties. And, and that just ratchets things up. And then the next moment, because what we do is we cut to later and Kirk is asleep in the captain's chair. And you can feel, again, this is the, those reaction shots. You could feel the awareness of every single person on the bridge that Kirk is asleep in the chair. Uh, and then Spock goes and wakes Kirk up. Smart, I was just thinking. By the way, uh, as I've gotten older, I can completely relate to this scene oh, yeah. where Kirk falls asleep you in the chair. A lot? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I think a lot. I think a lot too. <laughs> you should you, you should ask my wife and son. I am totally the old man that falls asleep in the chair all the time, all the time. 
There's, my my favorite books are the Patrick O'Brien novels, which are the Aubrey Matron series. And there's a line that Stephen Matron has that he says, there are two things that a man will never admit to being rich or being asleep. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and that that brings up some something too. you know, every time Kirk does one of these things that's embarrassing, he never apologizes. You know, yep. he just let's pretend it didn't happen and move on. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that's a good point. And what we find out is that we found at least the cause, which is that there was radiation. It did come from this comet. We go, OK, we're going to get that information to Dr. McCoy. When Spock comes up to Captain Kirk and he says, we, I think we may have found something. You, you, the look on Kirk's face is like, oh, thank God. You know, in his own subtle Kirk way of doing that, like, you know, some some hope, some optimism, which like, you know, at a time that we're at right now in this world, sure. any any shred of hope and optimism, we just latch on it. And then Kirk says, Lieutenant, let's take a message to, to Starfleet Command because he wants to inform Starfleet about what's going on. And he says, due to the proximity of the Romulans, better use code two. But, Captain, the Romulans have broken code two. If you remember the last bullet... Then use code three. And watching then Kirk try to give this message to Starfleet Command and fumbling over the quadrant and the details and the gestures that he's using to, like, just fill that stuff in. And then (laughs) if this... And it's just piled one after another, you know, from the fuel report, from the the code the falling asleep and now he's heading out and just as he's leaving he says oh mr sulu increase orbit to twenty thousand mile perigee you mean another twenty thousand, captain and i've totally seen this exact thing happen of you get angry because he knows he's right he never said that before and so he says i fail to understand why each one of my commands is being questioned I'll do as you're told, Mr. Sulu. Mr. Sulu, what is our present position? Orbiting at 20,000, sir. Wow. Hurts. It hurts. Yeah. Like, I don't care how many times I've seen this uh, this episode, this scene, you know, seeing someone that you, basically someone that you love fall apart in front of your eyes, not being able to do the things that they did so easily and effortlessly for as long as you've known them, basically. Uh, it's heartbreaking. It's relatable and uh, it, it's uncomfortable to watch, but it's a it's a, what makes this really one of the great episodes, one of the overlooked episodes, I think. And it becomes even more poignant when you consider how far up Kirk is. I mean, Kirk's a legend in Starfleet. Yeah. yeah. And to see right. he falls much higher uh, from a much higher area than even anybody else in the story. Yeah, it, that's exactly. I so agree. It's it's the because you know and the other thing about it too, and uh, Jim, you just that's it's so correct. Is like at this point in the show, this is a family, and Kirk is the head of the yep. family and the mm-hmm. hero of the family. And so every time we see Uhura or Sulu or Chekhov or any of them looking at this man they admire more than anybody else probably in the world, is heartbreaking. Yep. Absolutely heartbreaking. Radiation. Well, that's as good as answer as any, but why didn't we know about it earlier? Possibly, Doctor, because my thinking processes are not as efficient as before. You know, we don't, we focus on, <laughs> on, on, on Kirk's falling apart in front of our eyes, and those are the big examples. But the same things happen to Mr. Spock internally. You know, he can feel that his brain is failing him. And what is the most important part of Spock's identity is his brain. 
Absolutely. You know. His brain, his, his memory, his, his, his computer, computerized brain. Yep. Doctor, ship's temperature is increasingly uncomfortable for me. I've adjusted the environment of my quarters to 125 degrees, which is at least tolerable. <laughs> this is one of my favorite Star Trek jokes. This is the next <laughs> yeah, thing. yeah. I see I'm not going to be making any house calls on you. <laughs> I wondered if perhaps there was something which could lower my sensitivity to cold. I'm not a magician, Spock, just an old country doctor. And I, and I love Spock's yeah. response, yeah. as I always suspected. Now, here's what I love about this scene, that here in this moment of high drama, you still have a, a, an organic display of levity. And the word, the key word here is organic. This did not feel like a forced no. moment. No. Uh, it, it felt like a very natural moment. You know, this is something that Jane Kuhn does very well. Yep. It's something that in its in its extreme form is what led to the break between him and Roddenberry. But from a storytelling perspective, the function of this sort of thing is you don't want to be grim and ratcheting things up and making them tense throughout the whole episode. You have uh, sometimes you have to let go. And then you start it all over again. And these these moments like, you know, uh, I'm just an old country doctor and what I always suspected that that's the relief before they start putting the thumb screws to you again. And we're out in the corridor and there is Commodore Stalker who comes to Spock. Here comes that bad penny turning up again. Mr. Spock, a starship can function with a chief engineer, a chief medical officer, even a first officer on the physical par. But it's disastrous to have a commanding officer whose condition is any less than perfection. I am aware of that. So, and I want to ask, so so I want to ask both of you, Stalker's next line, does he mean this? Is this sincere? Please understand me. My admiration for Captain Kirk is unbounded. He is a great officer. Here's my response to that. Yeah. Steve Morris, this is why you are the right person to uh, to be doing this podcast with, because I have it in my notes Right in front of me, I'm holding up to the screen, which you can't see because this is a podcast, but I literally have this written down and I'm quoting from my own notes. Stalker, what is his motivation for Spock to take command of the Enterprise? Is he really looking out for the well-being of the crew or does he just want to get to Starbase 10 and take command of his post? I think maybe there's a third possible interpretation. The thing that that gets me about Stalker is the word that he seems to like to use more than anything else is regulations. He's got to do everything by the book. He's not a terribly imaginative guy, and Kirk Kirk kind of taps into this when he talks him uh, uh, talks to uh, Spock about him being a a desk town a desk bound paper pusher. Um, what's really interesting about this scene, though, is that you know. Stalker has seemed kind of milk toast up to this point. And, and I, think, <laughs> yeah. I, I do think he sincerely admires Kirk. But the discussion that he and Spock have regarding who's going to take over the ship, he kind of backs Spock into a corner and causes Spock to hang himself, mm. which also goes to show how how much Spock has degenerated he never would have allowed himself to be boxed in verbally and logically that way otherwise. Wow. That's a really great point. That's a really great point because so first of all, Stalker is following. And when it comes down to it, 
but Stalker really is doing the right thing. He's seeing that the captain of the Enterprise is incapable of continuing his command. He's following rules and regulations, and he orders Spock to do something that Spock himself knows that he should be doing, holding a competency hearing on Kirk. Spock is reluctant to do it, and I'm sure we're going to get into this very much into the next act because of the relationship that uh, Kirk and Spock have. But Spock is torn between two things, uh, duty and loyalty and logic and emotion, emotion that he suppresses, but that is still there because of the relationship that he has with Kirk. I mean, that's a, an emotional relationship, even though if it's not an overt one. And the other thing is that it was actually Leonard Nimoy's idea to have Spock interrogate and prosecute Kirk. Hmm. Fontana, Dorothy Fontana had alluded to this idea early on as well, but Nimoy sent a memo to Gene Kuhn and Roddenberry uh, suggesting the added element of having Spock follow Starfleet regulations and being pushed into doing so by Stalker. In a sense, Jim, what you just said, being forced into a corner where he had to hang himself. Well, and this is also the beginning of Spock being crucified step by step towards the end of the episode. This is where it starts, where, you know, Spock, Spock is held accountable for things he really doesn't want to do because of his loyalty and friendship to Kirk. Right. But he has no way out. He's boxed in. Well, I, I think I, I love everything both of you have brought up. And I think this is why this isn't a showy scene here. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like there's much more dramatic stuff that's going to happen in the in the courtroom, in the briefing room later. But this is a scene where there's so much going on. And the first thing, just going back to Stalker, I think people can have multiple motivations at the same time. And I think that often we're not always aware of why we're doing stuff or we're going, we think we're doing it for one reason and actually it's more complicated. I think Stalker 100% believes that he is doing this to save these people's lives. I also think that he's a person, you know, Kirk is a guy who's always said, give me the ball because he wants to be in charge and he's always scored, you know, and Stalker has never had the ball. And he's going like, man, maybe this is the moment where I need to take the ball, you know? Exactly. Um, yep. And and because these people need to be saved. The other thing, and I think this is, is and, I'll, and I'll ask this question in a moment, but is that I think the other moment that's so key is he says, he doesn't say, I want to take command. He says, I want you to take command. Right. Well, that's a good point. He's not doing this out of some like, man, I've always wanted to command a starship. That is, I definitely don't think that's a motivation at all. Right. He's not pulling a Decker. Exactly. exactly. Um, um, and, and the moment at which Spock says. Need I remind you, sir, that I too have contracted the same affliction. Yes, but you're a Vulcan. And this next line is so key. He says. I'm half human, sir. My physical reflexes are down. My mental capacity is reduced. I tire easily. No, sir. I am not fit for command. Well, if you are not with your Vulcan physique, then obviously Captain Kirk cannot be. I think that is a 100% perfectly logical argument. If Spock believes that he is not fit for command, then, and this is my question, is Kirk at this moment in the show fit for command? The question is no, I don't think Kirk is fit for command. I don't either. And, so- I, and I, think that, I think that Spock... I think he would have waited a little longer. For sure, Spock would have waited longer before he was in a situation where he said to Captain Kirk, all right, you know, Jim, 
you know, listen, enough's enough already. You you can't continue as the captain of the enterprise. He would have waited longer. You know, Stalker sort of, you know, sort of forced Spock into making it see the seeing the light earlier and made him do it earlier. But eventually Spock would have done that. He he, of course, is protecting his friend, but he is also the first officer, he's the second in command of the Enterprise. So the safety of the ship and the crew is just as much his responsibility as it is Kirk. So he would have come to that conclusion on his own eventually. Stocker just made it happen sooner. But the thing is, is that there's one other factor that's missing here that would have probably solved a whole lot of problems moving forward. So who else on the Enterprise has commanded in very dire situations? And it's done, Sulu. Sulu. Sulu has commanded the Enterprise twice before in times of combat. When the Gorn attacked in Arena and when the Klingons attacked in Errand of Mercy. So in two basically wartime situations, Sulu was capable enough of commanding the Enterprise. But in this situation, he's not. Now... Of course, you know, the writers just didn't think of that. But for the sake of continuity, uh, Stalker never considered, and neither does Spock consider to have Sulu take command. Well, we'll come back to that in a little while because that is definitely a problem that I think we need to bring up. I also think that once Spock realizes that he's going to have to do this thing, he does accept it. But watch his walk into the turbo lift, knowing, knowing that he has to do this to his best friend. Well, it's almost like he feels like he's going to the hangman's news. Yeah. Or going to be the hangman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And it's something that we see later with with Shatner in the hearing. Pause at the door, back to us, and then go. Yes. Yeah, good point. And again, this is this thing, that, and this is why this is a really good episode, is it piles on. That moment would be a perfect end of Act 2. You know, there's no, you know, that is a dramatic moment. Oh my God, Kirk's going to have to be on trial and Spock's going to put him on trial. It's a big deal. But that isn't because we're going to pile on one more thing because we're back in sickbay and in comes, and, I, and we get a joke right at the beginning. Now this isn't going to hurt a bit. That's what you said the last time. Did it hurt? Yes. <laughs> and right at that moment of levity, in comes Lieutenant Galloway, who immediately collapses and dies. Oh, poor Galway. Your metabolism caused her to age more rapidly than the rest of us, but the same thing's going to happen to us unless... How long have we got, Bones? Oh, matter of days. Perhaps hours. And that brings us to the end of Act 2. But before we move on to Act 3, another thought occurred to me. It is a really good thing, fellas. That the landing party, whatever is infecting them, they did not bring it with them back to the Enterprise. Like, I never thought about that. Like, in the naked time, one person brought back a disease and it quickly spread to the entire crew. And that that was almost the end of it. In Miri, when they beamed down to the other Earth, they were not allowed to beam up because they would infect the rest of the Enterprise. And it was up to McCoy to find a, a, a cure. In the Omega Glory, there was a initially a, a worry, a fear that whatever killed the crew of the Exeter, that Kirk and the landing party would bring it back to the Enterprise and it would kill them too. But 
you know, the, 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 there would be a natural immunity that would play out that would prevent that from happening. But in this situation, I wonder what this episode would have been like if this was a disease that infected the entire crew. Um, it would be it would be a much rougher episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it would be a lot more expensive. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good point. Well, and the thing is, is it would be a much weaker episode because, yeah. I, I, you know, time is a zero sum game. So any time we give to other characters getting old is time we take away from Kirk and our central story. It's Act Three, and we are in a trial back in the briefing room. And one of the things I love is that they restaged it. We just had a hearing in the same room in Wolf of the Fold, mm-hmm. and the seat that you sit in, like the witness chair, is in a different place. And this is now, and now we have Kirk put off to the side, separated very clearly. It's a beautifully staged moment. And the fact that he's slumping in his chair at the beginning of this thing, that just that image tells us a lot about what's going on. The, the other thing that you notice is that in addition to Kirk slumping in his chair, it looks like his shirt yeah. is a little bigger on him. And the reason for that is because Bob Justman, our pal Robert H. Justman, associate producer of uh, Star Trek at this point, he had suggested that the crew, the landing party, go through four distinct changes through the aging process. And he said, quote, in a memo to Gene Kuhn, all in all, I think that Bill Shatner could have a ball with this concept, and I'm certain that our regulars could also. But it was Justman who suggested that as Kirk got older, his body mass would shrink. So that is why, as Kirk got older, his shirt looked baggier and baggier. It's a great choice. Yeah, great choice. Really subtle, but effective. I did read that this competency hearing was ordered by Commodore Stocker. Reluctantly called by myself. Let it also read, I consider it invalid. <laughs> and then Stalker comes in and kind of gives his reasoning of why this is important because we've got to get to Starbase 10. The responsibility of this hearing is mine. And Spock, being an honorable person, says, On the contrary, Commodore. As presiding officer and as second in command of the Enterprise, the responsibility is mine. Even knowing that's going to hurt his friend. He has to do what he thinks is right. I am the captain of this ship, and I'm totally capable of commanding her. That's what this whole thing off and get back to work. It's quite impossible, Captain. The regulations are quite specific. And we, we start to go into the trial, and we call our first witness, and it's Sulu. How long have you served with Captain Kirk? Two years, sir. To your knowledge, has he ever had any difficulty making decisions? No, sir. Did he order you to maintain orbit? Did he later on repeat that order? Did he order you to increase orbit? Yes, sir. Did he several minutes later repeat that order? He did not. And it's so sad. It is sad because, yes, he did. And everyone is looking. He says, when I give an order, I expect it to be obeyed. I don't have to repeat my own. And he sits down. And here's the thing that I, I suddenly saw. What does Kirk do throughout all of Star Trek when he is at his weakest? What does Kirk do when the, when the, the odds are most against him, when he's going to be destroyed by the Viserys, when he is going up against odds that are completely impossible? What does he do? He bluffed. He, well, he, he bluffed in the Corbomite maneuver, but uh, I think generally speaking, Steve, to what you're alluding to is that he, he changes his strategy. And he, and he shows confidence. 
He swaggered. Confidence and compassion. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yes. And, and I think he's doing the same thing here. I think he is, I think deep down he is scared and insecure and he is putting on this whole show of having to put forth so much confidence. And what's so sad about it is this is what has worked for him forever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's not, not here. It's not working now. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Sulu confirms that the captain repeated his order. And again, Nimoy said, we said it a million times, but watch his acting too. It's much subtler than what McCoy and Kirk are doing, but it is really good. He brings on the yeoman who tries to say that, you know, he had other stuff on his mind, but then she finally admits that he forgot that he signed this uh, report, goes to Uhura and uh, talks about the code too. And again, you watch Uhura desperately trying not to hurt her captain. Right. And this reminds me a lot of the the, uh, trial in court martial where, you know, you have the yeoman and you have uh, McCoy Mm -hmm. and Spock taking the stand. They are trying to protect their captain and their friend. So the yeoman, I don't know, for some reason, the yeoman is dismissed, but Uhura gets to stay. I don't know why, but whatever. (laughs) Because we want to have reaction shots from Uhura and we don't care about the yeoman anymore. (laughs) More time, Um, more money. Exactly. I, I love that McCoy is asleep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they wake him up and, and we hear the computer's report on what Captain Kirk's age is at this moment. Subject's physical age based on physiological profile between 60 and 72, aging rapidly. And Kirk's response. Oh, I'm 34. I'm 34 years old. Now, Steve, I agree with you that they should have made his age a little bit, uh, a little bit older. A little bit, but yeah. you know, it's 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 pretty cool that he's young and he's already the captain. So, so go with me here. So, so since we've been doing Enterprise incidents, I've been going on the theory that when it comes to the star dates, the first number in the star date indicates which year of the five year mission the Enterprise is actually on. So the star date for this episode begins with 3478.2. So that three at the beginning indicates that this is the third year of the Enterprise five-year mission. And Kirk just said he was 34 years old. So two years before that, in year one, that means that Kirk would have been about 32 years old when he took command of the Enterprise. And and at that moment is also when Sulu started to serve with him because he just said during his uh, his testimony that he served with Captain Kirk for two years. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting, you know, if you start to think about like the retcon in that way, uh, that uh, Kirk was 32 when he took command of the Enterprise. It is interesting. And Shepard was two years older at that point, though. Right. He was 36. Yep, that's and right. I think at this moment, and and we we can't know when he says I'm 34. I'm 34 years old. I think he has forgotten about the disease. I think you know what I mean. Like I think he is in a moment where he's like, "What are you talking? What are you talking about? I'm 34." Oh, yeah, sure. And I, of course, I don't know, but that's how it feels to me when he says it. It's not his mental capacity degenerating even more rapidly. And I love McCoy's trying. He's trying to help his friend. He says. Yes, yes, but he's a better man right now, Doctor. You heard the computer's analysis of Captain Kirk's physical age. Do you agree with it? Plastic machine, Spock. You can't argue with a machine. He doesn't want to say it. Doesn't want to say it. Do you agree? 
agree with it, Doctor. And McCoy looks at Kirk. Yes. Yes, I do agree. And I am sorry, Jim. Look at Shatner's reaction. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like he's saying it's okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. That is the reaction. Yeah. I mean, Spock's not having fun. He doesn't like doing this. You wish to call any witnesses, Captain Kirk. And again, this is Kirk. This is the swagger. He's trying to put it on. He laughs. <laughs> I'm perfectly capable of speaking in my own defense, Mr. Spock. There's only one reason. And one reason alone for having this hearing. I refuse to leave Gamma Hydra 2. Oh, it's just, oh, you, and, and it's not even the first time he says it. Yeah. He's going to say it again in about 30 seconds. Yeah. And it's, it's no, it's Gamma Hydra 4. 4, Captain, 4. Gamma Hydra 4, Captain. Yes, a slip of the tongue. Captain, your inability to remember having given commands, reading and signing important orders, and then forgetting them. Your physical analysis is compiled by your own chief surgeon. The way Shatner plays this last bit is so good. <laughs> All these things would appear to be irrefutable proof of failing physical and mental conditions. Oh, I'm a little confused. Who wouldn't be at a time like this? My ship's in trouble. My senior officers are ill. And this nonsense about a competency hearing is enough to mix up any man. You know, we were we were talking a little while earlier about the scene with uh, Jan and Kirk in the corridor where he goes, what are you offering me, Jan, a going away present or love? He's at the other end of the spectrum at this point. He's he is. Yes, exactly. Desperate. Yeah. And yeah. you don't see Kirk desperate very often, but he's absolutely desperate at this point. And I think Steve's right, too. I think he's. He loses some of his self-awareness. He he sometimes forgets that he's got this affliction and he's he's trying to, you know, overcome it with bluster and with, uh, you know, that that exterior uh, image that he always projects. And this next moment, because he I think he's giving this speech and talking about, oh, it makes up any man. And he's trying to present something. And then the emotions hit him. Trying to relieve a captain of his command is, well, that's, that's. And then he looks at Spock. Oh, this is horrible. This is so painful. Spock, I wouldn't have believed it of you. It's, it's so painful. Just as we've gotten to this point through our analysis of the show and, and of these relationships, and seeing Kirk and Spock get closer and closer and closer, cum- culminating really with the events of Amok Time, with the the way that, that Kirk has disregarded orders to save his friend, only to have to fight him to save him again. And now here he is seeing that Spock is betraying him. Yep. It's on top of just the pain of seeing seeing this heroic captain fall to pieces, seeing their relationship fall to pieces at the same time. It's just, I could never put my finger on it why this episode is so much better than I think a lot of people give it credit for. But th- these are the reasons. These are absolutely the reasons. And, you know, we were talking about Nimoy's performance. You look at Nimoy, he just looks absolutely wounded. Oh, and yeah. there are a couple of scenes here and, and upcoming where he, he can't even meet Kirk's gaze because he's so wounded. Yeah, that's right. 
And I want to go back to this line just one more time. Trying to relieve a captain of his command. What is Kirk's true love? His command, the Enterprise. The Enterprise. The Enterprise. That is what Spock is doing in his mind. And then the bluster comes back. Go ahead, ask me questions. I'll show you what I'm capable of. There's nothing wrong with my memory. Go ahead, ask me anything. It's so painful. It just hurts so much. And then, he, and then Scott, as you brought up. We're in orbit around Gamma Hydra 2, right? Oh, the four. And the thing is, I think he knows. He knows he messed up. Anyhow, it doesn't matter. A lot more to running a starship and answering all the fool questions. A lot more. And Spock stands up and says, no more questions. If you would leave the room so the board can vote. And Kirk, with lots of fake confidence, says, good idea. Get the stupid voting over so I can get back to running the ship. And then he stops, just as you brought up, Jim. He stops and at the door and he looks at Spock and then at everyone else. And then in a very different tone, he says, I'll be in my quarters. Awaiting a decision. I think he knows 100% what's going to happen. Oh, absolutely he does. I mean, he knows he's he's through. He's finished. I got a hold of the, uh, I think it's listed as final draft, July 27th draft of the script. And I was telling Scott yesterday that when, you know, Kirk is is trying to show how on the ball he is, he talks about, I took over command from Captain, 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 and then Spock says, Pike. Mm. Oh. Scott, you were talking about how many parts of this episode refer back to history within, you know, the the reality of the show. Yep, yep. I'm sad that that got cut either. You yeah, know, that would have been medicine. great. That was yeah. especially because in the previous episode that was filmed, uh, we found out that the mirror universe Captain Kirk assassinated Christopher Pike. <laughs> what a guy. That what a guy. I, I, I wonder what the thought process was for cutting it. Since the senior officers are incapable, and I am a flag rank, I am forced by regulations to assume command. Sir, you have never commanded a starship. And this is the thing you brought up. He says, well, we can't have a junior officer. And, and yeah. this is where it's not just that is this where Spock should have said, yes, you can. Sulu's awesome. Obviously, Spock wouldn't talk that way. But it is <laughs> shocking we're right next to the Romulans and we're not, you know, suggesting Sulu. We're just going to let this guy take command. You know, we look at this show, we watch this show, and and some things, some little lapses like that, you can't explain. Some you can. I think this was one of those things where we got a deadline, we got to shoot this stuff, and we didn't think of that. But I think in in Stalker's uh, case, if you want to make excuses for it, I think in Stalker's mind, you know, in regulations, you have senior officers and then you have junior officers. And quite frankly, the junior officers just don't have as much weight as this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why I, I didn't think of Sulu. I, I think that's a good explanation. But I think this next moment is so ridiculous. And of course, it takes us to where we need to be to have a great, exciting conclusion of our show. <laughs> Set a direct course for Starbase 10. Warp 5. Across the neutral zone? Immediately, Mr. Sulu. Now, we've been saying this whole time that Stalker really cares about regulations and he's doing everything because of regulation. Well, it seems to me we're pretty well established. One of the biggest laws is we should not cross the neutral zone. But he goes, yeah, let's do it. And nobody says, hold on. We right. can't do that. 
Right, exactly. And and just goes to show you how green Stalker is. I mean, he has never commanded a starship before. You know, commanding a starbase, a stationary starbase, and commanding a starship are two completely different things. So the next scene takes place in Kirk's quarters. Mm -hmm. So this next scene was filmed on day seven of the production. It took six and a half days for them to film The Deadly Years. So this scene was filmed on the final day for the first half of the day. So then shooting on The Deadly Years wrapped right before lunch. And then after lunch, Mark Daniels came back onto the set and did a pickup scene with Barbara Luna, who was feeling better after getting very sick during the making of Mirror Mirror. And they reshot, or well, they didn't reshoot it. They shot the scene where Marlena Moreau was in that sexy outfit and she has her big kiss with Kirk. So so try to imagine you're William Shatner and you're in old makeup and you're, you know, your your mind is in one episode and then you, you have lunch and for the rest of the day you go back to filming in that, you know, sleeveless top and you're back in the mirror universe in your quarters making out with uh, Barbara Luna. <laughs> you know, that's that's one thing that I had never known until reading more recently in the last couple of years is how many times they would split a day to either do pickups for a previous episode or get started on the next one. And I, I I'm with you, Scott. It's like, as an actor, how do you shift gears like that? Amazing. Amazing. It's another reason why acting is, uh, is, is so overlooked for its difficulty that you have to, you know, they're shooting out of order and you know, you're like, putting your head like, okay, where am I in this scene? And, you know, it's not as easy as like, you know, you're filming chronologically that hardly ever happens in film or TV, but uh, it's a testament to their, their just how talented they were this, or at least in this case, how talented Shatner was that he could, you know, shift gears from the deadly years back to mirror mirror and then come back the next day and continue on with the deadly years. What I always compare the job of an actor to is is it's like baseball in the sense that a lot of people say that the hardest thing anyone can do in sports is to hit a baseball. And that is that if, if you're doing it one out of, you know, 15 times and you get in and you have a 200 average, or 250 average, you're pretty good. Yeah. Um, is that what happens in baseball is you don't do that much all the time. And then there's this one moment everybody's looking at you and you have to perform in front of all these people and succeed. And that is you're sitting around, you're in your trailer half the day, and then you get called onto the set and everybody's staring on you and you have to act as if you've suddenly aged 50 years and you can't remember and you're having these huge emotional moments. They have to wait around and then you have to make out with somebody. And, you know, it's it's super high difficulty at a very small amount of time. Absolutely. And Spock and Dr. Wallace come in. I have no idea why Dr. Wallace is in this comes in, except that she's it's important for the scene later. Oh. I've been relieved. I'm sorry, Captain. Yes. You should have been a prosecuting attorney. And Spock tries to explain himself, and Kirk is having none of it. None of it. Regulations require regulations. Don't give me regulations. You won't command all along. And then this moment of... Captain, I have not assumed command. You're proud of the... I mean, you have not assumed command. And he explains that he's sick too, and Commodore Stalker is in command. Stalker? Are you crazy? He's never had a field command. Mr. Scott was unfit for command. Commodore Stalker is ranking officer. Don't, don't talk to me about rank. Man's a chair-bound paper pusher. 
So here's what's interesting. He refers to Stalker as a chair-bound paper pusher. Oh, I know and where you're where going. Am I, where am I going with this, Steve Morris? Uh, is motion picture? Is that where that thing is, where he's an admiral? Yep, yep. yep. That's exactly where I'm going. Be- becoming a chair-bound paper pusher is what would happen to Captain James T. Kirk at the end of this five-year mission when he was promoted to admiral, at least until V'ger reared its ugly head and he got to, you know, basically pulled a dick move to take the Enterprise back. Yeah, basically. (laughs) And this moment, it's so sad. It's sad for all the things that both of you have said. We've built up their relationship. These are best friends in the world. And Kirk says, You traitorous, disloyal. You stabbed me in the back the first chance you get. Spock. And the look on Spock's face, the, the pain that you see in Spock's face. Get out. I never want to have to look at you again. Uh, another testament to just how brilliant Nimoy, Nimoy really was with playing Spock. Spock really has a hard time in this episode. Which is the next one that shoots after Dead? I Mud. Okay, so <laughs> I'm surprised that in I Mud, Spock will even talk to Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one of the things, you know, that we talked about that the mental decline is faster than the physical decline. You know what they don't say, but I feel is really true, is the emotional decline, mm-hmm. is that Kirk is losing emotional control as well and lashing out with all of this anger at this moment. And Spock leaves sheepishly, leaving Dr. Wallace and Kirk alone. And he doesn't he didn't know she was there. You could see in his performance, he turns around and sees her and then has to kind of pull himself together you know he has to stand up straight because he's in front of this i I think partially it's because it's just a woman you know how kirk is yeah but especially you know this is somebody who she's not used to seeing kirk all bent over and and diminished Mm -hmm. and he's trying to pull it together yeah pulling myself should not let him confuse me frighten me i really do think he knew you know he he put out a lot of bluster, but he he knew what was going on. And her line is so interesting, and and I think this is a real thing. This is a real thing. She says, "Everybody understood." And it's like you know, having dealt with people with diseases, yeah, I know they understand. That doesn't make it easy. In fact, sometimes people being really understanding makes it harder. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm not all again. I'm not. If you. Muscular aches doesn't make a man old, and you don't run a starship with your arms, you run it with your head. And see, this is where it comes 180 degrees. He's exactly opposite of where he was, Yeah, how self-aware he was in the, I think it was Act One, in the corridor with Jan. And this has one of my favorite funny, intentional or unintentional line reading. I admit I'm getting a little gray, but radiation will do that thing. yeah he's definitely trying to downplay but by the way it is in this scene that we see the cover shot that is used on photo novel number 11 just saying (laughs) all right um and and then he said and this is the thing i think he really it's hard to see yourself sometimes like i mean not not it's just what you said jim he's lost that self-awareness oh jim will you forgive me jim you know me look at me closely tell me But in the scene in the corridor, in Act Two, Kirk says he goes and old. Yeah. In Act Two, he was 
sort of facing it with grace. Yeah. And now he's facing it with so much more vulnerability. He's losing everything that makes him, you know, the captain that he is. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, back in uh, The Enemy Within, they talk about how the good Kirk and bad Kirk are separated and you can't be an effective captain without both halves. Um, in this case, you know, he he's right. You can't, you, you run a, a starship with your intellect, but his intellect is going. You know, we, we keep talking about losing what he loves the most. He's losing the Enterprise. But as we saw in this side of paradise, what is it that makes the Enterprise the Enterprise? And the answer to that is the crew. Because without the crew, the Enterprise is an empty shell. The soul of the Enterprise is its crew. And part of that soul, what gives Kirk sustenance is the crew of the Enterprise. And that is what he is losing. We're in sickbay. And now Kirk's hair is all white, and he sees Spock and says, nastily, What are you doing here? It would seem to be the place where I can be of the most use. Maybe you'd like to relieve Dr. McCoy. Wow. Ouch. Nasty, vicious Kirk is not a really nice guy. No, he's not. (laughs) And again, we go back to Chekhov. That's the big question. And this, what I love about this scene is that despite the fact that Kirk is furious at Spock, is that we see that Kirk, Spock, and McCoy together are one great brain because they work this out together. Beam down together. We were on the surface together in the same spot. We were together all the time. No, not all the time, Captain. He left us for a few moments. He left us? He left us. And then then Kirk's wheels are turning. He went into the building. Spock. Something happened. And I, I love Nimoy, man. Yes. Yes, indeed, Captain. Doctor, you will remember. And then Kirk has it. He was scared. He saw the dead body. And he ran out of the building and he was scared to death. Uh, what I love about the scene is how many times have we seen the big three together, you know, each taking different points mm-hmm. as they as they volley, as they as each one of they pass the ball to the other person as they're figuring out a situation. Or even when it's just Kirk and Spock, like in the the briefing room scene in The Alternative Factor. But here they are, the three of them, way in the advanced stages of this affliction. And they are feeding off of each other. They are gaining strength for this brief moment. It's like they're back. It's almost like that's all they have left. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and what's great, too, is that they basically, Spock and Kirk set it up for McCoy to take it home. Right. Scared. Heart beats faster, breath gets short, and there's cold sweats, adrenaline flows, adrenal activity. Adrenaline activity. Bingo. It was ancient history just after the atomic age uh, used for radiation sickness. Adrenaline. Now, I couldn't, I actually spent, I ran out of time, but I was trying to look to see if this actually was true, if adrenaline, and I couldn't find out. So if someone out there. I I think so, but certainly not like this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> not, not like this. <laughs> and, and Dr. Wallace is like, no, we got some great medicine for uh, radiation sickness. And he's like, yeah. Yes, yes. Now, for that adrenaline. And now Spock is like, yeah, I think we could put something together. 
And McCoy goes, Well, don't just stand that jaw and spunk. You and Dr. Wallace get cracking. And McCoy is so great. DeForest Kelly is so terrific in this scene. He's awesome. Entering Romulan neutral zone, sir. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing, dude? Uh, yeah, yeah. Lieutenant Uhura, let me know if we contact any Romulan. And right on cue. <laughs> I think we just made contact, sir. Dripping with sarcasm. They're bracketed, sir. Engineering wants instructions, sir. I'm a Spoker, what are your orders? And he is frozen. He yep. is a deer in the headlights. And that is the end of Act 3. Act 4, the Enterprise is taking a beating. We're in sickbay, and Kirk wants to get to the bridge. He is trying to get to the bridge, and they will not let him go. So so in the footage in the original version of this episode, the Romulan attack was compiled from two two different episodes. One of them, of course, being Balance of Terror, because that's where we see the Romulan ships firing and, you know, decloaking and everything. And the shots of the Enterprise actually taking the hit from the Romulans came from Errand of Mercy, where the Enterprise was really taking uh, the hits from the Klingons from a ship that we didn't see. So here is where... When I was watching The Deadly Years uh, back, I think it was in 2006 or 2007, with the remastered, redone visual effects, that was such a big surprise because like when I watched The Doomsday Machine or, or Balance of Terror with the redone special effects, I was expecting that. But what I wasn't ex- expecting from The Deadly Years was that they were going to redo the visual effects for the Romulan attack on the Enterprise. And that scene in the in the new visual effects that were done by Dave Rossi and Mike and Denise Akuda, I think that stuff came out terrific. It's cool, yeah. It's really, really cool. And I think that's that this is another episode that is improved by the new visual effects. And, and you know that it was probably Mike who was really bothered by the fact that those were photon, photon torpedoes and not <laughs> Romulan weapons. Absolutely. Sure. Yes. <laughs> and on the bridge, Stalker's just like, can we just talk to the Romulans? <laughs> if I could talk to them, explain to them why we violated the neutral zone. The Romulans are notorious for not listening to explanations. And I love Sulu's line. And this, again, to your point, Scott, about continuity. Lieutenant Hulu is right, sir. You tangled with them before. I love that line. Another great... Uh, throwback to Balance of Terror and an, another great way that this episode in many ways establishes good continuity. Greenhorn, up there running my ship. Jim, if I have to give you a shot. No. Jim, boy, you just lay quiet. You can't do no good. We're both through. No, my ship. My ship. All right, I want to stop you right there. Kirk is desperate to get to the bridge. Yes. He tried to get to the bridge when he before and they they had they had to tie him down and he keeps repeating my ship and then he says again with a stronger inflection my ship and i think at that moment he is actually remembering the moment in the briefing room when he got the disease mm. and he and he thought to himself never lose you yeah never absolutely an unofficial way to establish continuity, but I think there is definitely a connection between what Kirk was feeling at that moment and the way he felt in the briefing room after he got the disease in the naked time. A, I totally agree. And B, at this moment, I actually think 
this 80 something year old Kirk, 100 year old Kirk, is still a better commander than Com- Commodore Stalker. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. That, <laughs> I wish that he could go up. Um, I also, by the way, so we've seen we've seen the Enterprise shake all sorts of times. We've seen big shakes and constant shakes and different kind of shakes. I think Spock's slight stumble mm-hmm. as he walks in with the medicine is so good. Doctor, made the necessary computations and produced this serum. It is crude and dangerous. It could cure or kill, Doctor. Don't give me any Vulcan details, Spock. Just give me the shot. No. I'll take the first shot. That that's our guy. Yep. He says, no. Yeah, and it's and it's not even he's doing it because, oh, this is a way I can get up on the bridge. He's very after having been so foggy, he's very clear and he yeah. says yeah. it. He goes, How long do you think the ship can take the pounding? I've got to get up there. Jim, it could kill you. I'll die anyway. If there's a chance, then he knows he's the guy who can get them out of it. So he's got to get it first. It's a great moment. It's literally exactly what I wrote in my notes. And that the moment he says, I'll die anyway, that's full Kirk. I think that moment is actually the heroic Captain Kirk moment, not the one that happens on the bridge, which is awesome. And I totally love it. The I'll die anyway. That's Kirk. But, you know, that that's another reason why this episode feels so relevant and relatable because how many times have we had people, loved ones, you know, Steve, you mentioned yourself, uh, whether it's, it's dementia or Alzheimer's where for a moment they're back and they're fine. Yeah. And that's where Kirk is with this. Yep. Um, it's funny. You know what got him there? Probably adrenaline before he's going to get the adrenaline and they give him the shot and he immediately collapses and then is screaming well, well, what's happening? The aging process has stopped. His bodily functions are getting stronger. Okay. So I was talking about the bloopers before. Okay. <laughs> so there is a great blooper. And I don't know if this was a blooper or this was just a deleted scene. <laughs> but <laughs> there's this great shot of the Forrest Kelly, you know, covered with all the makeup where it's like, what, 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 what's, what's, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's hilarious. And back on the bridge, uh, stalker basically goes opinion, Mr. Sulu. And I'm going like, my opinion is Mr. Sulu should have been in command. They know they have this. They know our shields would get out. Well, then we have no alternative but to surrender. Sir. The Romulans do not take captives. His delivery is great. For the for the guy who was the comic relief through this entire show, the venomous anger he has in this yeah. moment is fantastic. We're losing power, sir. What am I going to do? I've got to do something. And then, at that moment, the doors open. Right there, coming out of the turbo lift, Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship <laughs> Enterprise. Good morning, Mr. Saloon. He's fit and trim and looks like he did at the beginning of this episode. His hair is perfectly in place. <laughs> and this is the moment where when I think back to Star Trek and, and the, the, the great Kirk moments, like this is why I would follow James T. Kirk into an active volcano 
And I've said this many times, Steve, as you know, this is another one of those moments. He just seizes control. He is, this is the Kirk that we love. The Kirk with the bravado, the swagger, the confidence, cool as a cucumber. This is why Kirk is great. And this is why Shatner was born to play him. And here's the thing is that we've talked throughout this whole episode about how important these reaction shots were in watching the crew watching Kirk's decline and how painful it was for each one of them. And that isn't just for those moments. That is something that we earned to pay off now because the moment that he walks in and it goes around the bridge and we see all of them see Kirk and all of them, despite the fact that they're real close to everybody dying, all go, it's going to be okay. He's back. He's back. They're all smiling. They're all relieved. This is our this is our captain. I agree. I mean, and it kind of reminds me in the first motion picture, Scott, Kirk takes over command and and Uhura says, well, our chances of coming back from this may have just doubled. Oh, you know, absolutely. Kind of absolutely. Thing, you know. And that yeah. was a deleted scene for the motion picture. Yeah. They didn't play, yeah. you know, they, they didn't show that scene until it aired on uh, the ABC Sunday night movie. We're surrounded by Romulan vessels. Maximum of 10. Range 50 to 100,000 kilometers. Engineering, this is the captain. I want full emergency power. I want the warp drive engines on full standby. Kirk out. And then he does another throwback, Steve. What is that throwback? Scott, I'm so glad you asked me that question because, of course, this is one of the great references ever because we're going to go back to the Corvamite maneuver. And, And it's a fantastic plant and payoff, too, because after he gets everything set up and he goes to Uhura and he says, Open up a special channel to Starfleet Command. Go to and there's this moment where Hora reacts is like, oh, no, he's not back. But Captain Code. That's an order, Lieutenant. Code 2. That's such a great moment. Kirk knows exactly what he is doing. The Romulans have broken Code 2, and he wants the Romulans to hear everything he is about to say. From Enterprise to Starfleet Command the Second. Have inadvertently encroached upon Romulan neutral zone, surrounded and under heavy Romulan attack. Escape impossible, shields failing. We'll implement the struct order using Cobramite device recently installed. Spock, by the way, still an old man, has a great reaction and a nod like, okay, I know what this guy's going to do. <laughs> Since this will result in the destruction of the Enterprise and all matter within a 200,000 kilometer diameter and establish a corresponding dead zone, all Federation ships will avoid this area for the next four solar years. Explosion will take place in one minute. It's great. It's great. It's just such a nick of time kind of thing because, you know, Steve, when we were talking about, about Mirror Mirror and it was a race against time to get back to the prime universe. And then suddenly they had three hours left and then suddenly they actually had only a half hour. Right. Plus Spock has orders to kill Captain Kirk if he doesn't destroy the Hawkins. So just that happens in this episode. So they're dying. Uh, you know, the, the landing party except for Chekhov, is dying. And as if that wasn't bad enough, now they're in the neutral zone in Romulan territory under attack from 10 Romulan birds of prey, and the whole crew is going to die. The the, the Enterprise is going to be completely destroyed. And Kirk just is one of those, one of the ultimate Captain Kirk saves the day moments. And he does it effortlessly with confidence and bravado. And it's like, this is why Kirk is just... 
He's just the best captain in all of Star Trek. It, it's kind of interesting, too, that uh, Scott, you'll know this, that uh, Roddenberry said we should have some kind of references to what the Corbomite maneuver is. And Gene Kuhn said no, because Gene Kuhn understood the uh, intelligence of the audience yep. mm-hmm. and right. understood that that would, you know, that would get into exposition that would totally screw the, uh, the rhythm of the scene. I, I couldn't agree more, but and that's exactly what I was going to ask is I wonder, okay, it's 1967 and this comes on TV. I mean, we've watched these episodes over and over again. So the second we hear Corbomite, we're like, we know what's going on, <laughs> yeah. but you might've missed that. Ep- I wonder how many people watching went, oh my God, that's like one of those early episodes. I totally remember that. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how many did or, 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 or didn't. Even if they didn't, it, it doesn't even matter because again, you know, Everybody on the bridge, their reaction spot, for instance, they're letting you in on the on the, yes, the yes. gag, you know. Romulan's giving ground, Captain. Obviously, they tapped in as you expected them to. A logical assumption, Mr. Spock. Are they still retreating? Yes, sir. Good. Walk factor eight now. And they go off, and the Romulans fall behind they could they were totally caught off guard we're out of the neutral zone secure from red alert this is the fastest resolution to any big (laughs) battle we've ever had for sure and stalker kind of embarrassed himself says captain i just wanted to assure you that i did what i thought best to save both you and the men and i believe him i believe him yeah Yeah. i think he did i think he was he obviously horribly wrong but uh but uh, to go into the neutral zone, I, other than going into the neutral zone, I think he he, he made good decisions. I was going to say one thing that I, you know, we were talking about the fact that he's a, uh, uh, what what was it, Scott? Deskbound uh, uh, pencil paper, paper pusher. Paper pusher. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. You look at uh, you look at his uniform. He's not wearing a command uniform. Right, he's, he's wearing, wearing a Commodore uniform. Services. So he, he's completely out of his depth. I mean, I think. Steve, I think you're exactly right. I think he's absolutely sincere, but he never he never had the toolbox to pull yeah, this off. For yeah, sure. Exactly. Definitely was not playing with a full deck of cards. <laughs> you should know, however, that there's very little a Starbase can do that a Starship can. But I love his response. I love Stalker's response. Shows a lot of class. If I may say so, Captain, I am now quite aware of what a Starship can do. With the right man at the helm. In comes McCoy, looking young and spry. Anytime you're ready, Mr. Spock. I am quite ready now, Doctor. Because of your Vulcan physique, I've prepared an extremely potent shot for you. However, I thought you might like to know that I've removed all the breakables from sickbay. That is very considerate of you, Doctor. Oh, poor Spock. I think that's fun. I, I don't know. I think that's a funny little bit. Well, gentlemen, all in all, an experience we'll remember in our old age. And then he feels his back. Which won't be for some while, I hope. Then finally, take over, Mr. Sulu. <laughs> Why didn't we have you take over a long time ago? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you're so right. <laughs> Steady as she goes. Steady as she goes, Captain. I thought I said that. And that is the end of the episode. So here's what's interesting. So up until this episode went before the cameras, there was a scene that was going to be filmed that was in that final draft that was not filmed because they ran behind schedule and oh, what a scene that would have been and what a a great entertaining moment that would have provided. So after Kirk takes the shot, 
in the filmed version of the episode that we saw, you see Kirk writhing, you know, sees his lower body mm. writhing in pain in the bed. Well, the, the, the scene that was written, so after Kirk takes the shot, he makes his own way to the bridge. And as he is going from level to level, you see him get younger and younger wow. until he steps off, uh, steps out of the turbo lift onto the bridge and he looks like, like the Kirk that we know. And the problem was, is that the way they timed out the episode, everything was supposed to be, you know, right on schedule. But Joseph Pedney could not understand why they were falling behind. And Steve and Jim, what do people do when they get older? They talk more slowly. Oh, that's a good point. Interesting. So even something like that, talking more slowly, apparently slow production down enough where when it came down to it, they would have pushed this episode into another half day over schedule and they had to, they had to move on. So that's why they just shot the, uh, what they shot and it still works. It's still a great moment, you know, because when you actually do see Kirk walk off the bridge, younger, sprightly, you know, bouncing back onto the bridge, it actually is a really awesome payoff. Two, two, two things. One is what surprised me. What I assumed made it go slower is all the makeup. Makeup will slow you way, way down. Sure. Um, and I think it's a great thing that they didn't do that because, as you said, Scott, I would have robbed us of the moment of seeing young Kirk for the first time. For that, sure. That, for that's sure. what makes that moment so great. Um, did people have anything to say about this episode? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, they did. So Joseph Pevney said, interestingly, the biggest problems with filming The Deadly Years were the egos of the actors. As I remember, very difficult. DeForest mm. Kelly was very upset because he had the feeling that this episode was his, that he was the chief character of the show. And I was spending more time with Bill than I was spending with him. Very interesting. So Sarah Marshall, who played uh, uh, Janet Wallace, she said the stories were just fantastic. It's like we take them for granted now. They were fabulous stories. I thought The Deadly Years was very well written, and it was a joy to finally see it. Beverly Washburn, who played Galway, said it was a fun role. And I got along with everybody. And William Shatner was quite the cut-up. I remember DeForest Kelly was very soft-spoken and warm. And Leonard Nimoy was nice, but quiet and more serious. Not as much of a character as Shatner. And Jim, you touched on this earlier, but DeForest Kelly said, there was a great disturbance in the force. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong, I'm crossing the streams. DeForest Kelly said, there was a great disturbance at the studio at the time because they felt that I should have been nominated for that show, but I was not. They were very upset about it. I I, I wonder, you know, I'm I'm a big Bill Shatner fan, Bill Big Kirk fan, but I I kind of wonder if the reason that they didn't push D. Kelly was Nimoy had been nominated twice, and Shatner hadn't been nominated at all, and maybe somebody thought, well, you know, that's really because at that point he was counting lines. Well, right. 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 Well, by this point, by yeah. this point in the production, uh, Jim, uh, you know, there was only one season for which uh, Star Trek was nominated. And that was, you know, the first time that Nimoy was nominated. So, you know, between the fact that Nimoy was nominated and Shatner wasn't and the fact that Spock was becoming quite the, the popular character by this point, even overshadowing Kirk, 
Yeah. Uh, and yes, I mean, even Norman Spinrad uh, mentioned what during our discussion on Doomsday Machine that that he saw that Shatner was counting lines. Right. So there was definitely some tension in that area. And and I'm a big Shatner fan like you are, but it wouldn't surprise me either. Yeah, it's too bad. And, and, it, and it was kind of, to me, it was kind of surprising that uh, there was so much rancor from D. Kelly because D. Kelly was always the guy in the cast that everybody liked. You know, right, he was right, always right, right back. Uh, so, yeah, that's interesting, that dynamic behind the scenes. Well, what I want to know is, Steve Morris, after this deep conversation on the deadly years, how has your assessment of this episode changed? I always liked it, and I like it even more now. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it is is it's where I am in my own life and experiences I had that I hadn't had when I was a kid. And part of it is just observing much more closely everything these characters are going through. It's funny, there's something that um, that we talked about, I don't remember in which episode, but it was I think it was in one of the episodes that was less successful, is that what we were talking about was that there was a bunch of ingredients for Star Trek, good ideas that uh, you know we were exploring, adventure. Um, and But one of them that had been missing was deep emotional connection to something personal for the characters. And that is where this episode truly shines. Agreed. This isn't a huge adventure. It does have some science fiction ideas, but what it's really exploring is it allows us to look at these other sides of the characters. And for me, at least, the big revelation was the deep vulnerability and even insecurity of Captain James T. Kirk. And we've seen him in pretty weak positions, including Enemy Within, including Dagger the Mind, a whole bunch of times where he's, you know, in real bad, weak positions. But I don't think I've ever seen him as vulnerable consistently. And it's real painful and real difficult. And so I had a very strong, visceral, emotional reaction to watching it this time. And I think it's I think, you know, what's interesting is we've talked about the great episodes of Star Trek. And and obviously that's part of what makes it great. But I think these second tier episodes of Star Trek, that's maybe even more impressive in some ways that even uh, the lesser ones, there's powerful stuff to find Agreed. as i did in this episode uh, i i completely agree i mean steve i i think that that i that the revelations continually when we cover some of these like second tier episodes and and a second tier star trek episode is as as a great star trek episode by any other name jim how do you feel about the deadly years after this conversation for me the shorthand take on Star Trek, people who don't watch the show, the focus seems to be on the thematic stuff, on the allegorical level. But my own personal feeling has always been it's about the characters. And I think that the proof of the pudding is you go forward, what, 15 years or so, and Nick Meyer picks up the Gene Kuhn uh, mantle. For sure. And he doesn't focus on, you know, an, at least until the Undiscovered Country. He doesn't really focus on the allegory. He focuses on the characters, yeah. right? on the characters. And this, this is an episode where you really get all the mileage out of it that you can. It's, it's something that you see things in this episode that you would never see in the next generation where everybody gets along and everybody's cool and all that stuff. They were not afraid to put these characters head to head. Yep. And when you do that, you reveal more of the characters, you make them more vivid and bring them to life better, you know. And when you got a cast as good as this one who can actually carry that load from the script. 
I, I, I agree. And I, I agree with so much of, of well, everything that you, you said, Steve, uh, about your assessment, especially when it comes to to finding this episode more relatable now than you ever did because of just life and circumstance. And also exactly what you said about, about character, about, about this, the dynamic with these characters and how, how we've seen them get closer and closer through very, very trying circumstances that made them so solid, whether it's the enemy within or, or, or a mock time. But for me, one of the things that really jumped out at me this time was just how it, it established how lived in the Star Trek universe was even by this very early point, how lived in the Enterprise felt. There was a history there. There's continuity. Some of it is overt, like referring to the Cobramite device, referring to the Romulans. We tagged them before. But even some of the themes that are more subtle, like Kirk maybe thinking back to that moment in the naked time, the, the romantic interest referring to six years, four months, and an odd number of days, right. stuff like that. Uh, there's so much that is like where Star Trek feels so lived in. And even an episode that while the story itself may not be like a, a city on the edge of forever or a mirror, mirror or a balance of terror, it is so exceptionally well done. All the little details like with the, the shirt being a little bit bigger, uh, you know, some of the mannerisms, some of the glances that Shatner would make, I was able to appreciate that so much more this time around. And I know I've said this before many times, Steve, but this is definitely another episode that I already loved, and it has gone way up in my assessment of this series. So that's what we think of the deadly years, but we want to hear your thoughts. And the best place to give them to us is on social media. Maybe you could visit our Facebook page, just do a search for Enterprise Incidents. But if you're a Twitter kind of person, then look for Enter Incidents. On Instagram, it's Enterprise Incidents. And we would love you to subscribe to the show at wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube. Hey, you know what? Subscribe to all of them. Why not? <laughs> and while you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. They're very, very important. We're so thrilled. We just passed 200 five-star reviews. That's a, that's a huge step for us. And the next step, I think, is 2,000. I think that should be the next one. We, yeah, get to that's it. we it. need all of you to contribute to do that. Leave your comments on YouTube. And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you're interested in other movies that deal with growing older, oh. well, maybe you might want to check out the cinephiles episodes on no country for old men, where Tommy Lee Jones is dealing with his own mortality. You can watch rock Hudson age through a whole lifetime in giant, an elderly gunslinger in Clint Eastwood's unforgiven. You can see a whole lifetime of a very complicated story in there will be blood. And of course, one of the greatest performances of any actor going through every stage of life in history is, of course, Orson Welles in Citizen Kane. You forgot one, Steve. I did? Yes. If you want to talk about uh, dealing with getting older, you got a, a movie hiding in plain sight there on the cinephiles, the cinephiles covering Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. You know what's funny? I almost mentioned it, and then I was like, ah, oh, we mentioned it a bunch. We put it on the feed. I'll just <laughs> skip it, but you're absolutely right. So that's how you would find me and my work. Scott, how would people find you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And like Steve said, please be sure you not only subscribe to Enterprise Incidents, but make sure you give us a review. And more important than anything, if you are listening to Enterprise Incidents, we are so grateful for the reviews we've already given. 
please feel free to write another one for us if you haven't already done that. But definitely, for sure, be sure to share Enterprise Incidents on your social media so more people find us and hear. We're, you know, we're hearing all the time from people who are listening and saying, oh, I just discovered this podcast. Please help more people discover Enterprise Incidents by sharing Enterprise Incidents on your own social media platform. Jim Brooks, I am so excited that, and we are so excited to have you join us on Enterprise Incidents. Thank you so, so very, very much. Are you on social media? Where can people check you out? <laughs> Not on social media. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking me. Uh, I, like I said, I've, uh, I've uh, listened to a lot of the other episodes and it's a, it's a good show. And it's also good that um, as both of you were saying, this is an excellent way for people to rediscover the original series, which I think sometimes gets forgotten in the wake of the, the new shows, Discovery and all that stuff. It, it really was a great show. It was a great yeah. show. And yeah. uh, I appreciate you guys bringing me on, letting me participate. Thanks. Well, it's been it's been great having you, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on. I've so much enjoyed this conversation. But Scott, I'm curious about where the Starship Enterprise is going next week. Uh, the next voyage of the Starship Enterprise brings a lot of levity to <laughs> the Enterprise. In addition to the return of a fan favorite, we are going to see once again on Star Trek the return of Harcourt. <laughs> That's right. Harcourt, Fenton, Mud, and I, Mud. I, Mud is the next episode we are covering on Enterprise Incidents. That is going to be a doozy of a conversation for sure. I cannot wait to have this one with Steve Morris. Until the next episode of Enterprise Incidents on I, Mud, keep going boldly.